0: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show that's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series.
1: The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, Airlines, General Aviation, Warbird Restorations, Airshow News, Sport Aviation, home building, Gliding, Aviation Media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, Warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com.
2: G'day, I'm Steve Visher, And I'm Grant McCarran, And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On ya, Dave. Yeah, good on ya, mate.
1: Yeah, we got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway?
0: Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS aviation podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended.
3: I remember some men started prying and others started prying. Um, partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run.
0: I was scared and let that be no secret.
3: Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river. And one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge.
0: It was a bitterly cold morning, and I was crouched down in this damn hole, and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valour podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com.
1: The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Flight DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Flight DC-3. Go to dot 3conz
0: Welcome to the Wings of the New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>
4: Welcome to the Australian National Aviation Museum.
0: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood.
3: And I'm your co-host for the Wings Over Australia sub-series, James Kitely. We're here
0: with Dave Soderstrom of uh, the museum. Hi, Dave. G'day, Dave. How are you going? Great, great. Tell us a little bit about the background of the museum.
4: The museum's uh, the oldest functioning aviation museum in Australia. So we effectively started the museum trend in Australia. And the original foundation was to save a Bristol Bowfighter and that became the cornerstone of the museum and the founding blocks. Right, and you've got uh, quite a large collection. Yeah we do, we have a collection with over 70 aircraft, not all on display currently obviously and some are in other locations around Australia, Um, but it's an ever growing collection, we've received two aircraft this year already and with the possibility of some more. Right, right. I think wow. we just,
3: uh, the museum's just celebrated its 50th birthday earlier this
4: year, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, we celebrated our 50th anniversary of the foundation of the of the museum. Um, was founded, or was co-founded and started, all with the uh, Bristol Bowfighter, which we'll talk about later on.
0: And uh, today it's a very busy day. You've got an event on here.
4: Yeah, we do. I mean, we have events here quite regularly, but today's event is the Wings and Wheels uh, event. Uh, we have a local car club come down and they showcase everything from historic racing cars to modern muscle cars and everything in between and all matches in well with some of our very historic aeroplanes. Absolutely. Do do you have a lot of events through the year here? We do, we have quite a lot of events. Um, Probably our single biggest event that we uh, really promote is our Open Cockpit Day. So we invite families to bring their children and etc. People who aspire to have something to do in aviation, always a good event so they can climb into aircraft and experience what it's like to see and touch and feel a, a real airplane.
3: So now we're standing in front of the uh, Fairy Firefly. It's uh, one of my favourite aircraft because it's a uh, World War II British design and the uh, the later models looked uh, a real mixture of um, power and presence. Uh, this one's folded up. We've got the wings folded, as we uh, as we see here. Um, and we're just going to have a bit of a closer look. But uh, first, uh, Dave, can you tell us a bit about this aircraft?
4: Yeah, well, this is the second of two fireflies we've had in the collection. Yep. The first one was actually air delivered direct from the Navy to us. Uh, this is the second one. The, the first one was since uh, sold off and used to fund various other applications in, in the museum. Um, this girl here, it's an AS6 version, so anti-submarine version. Yep. Uh, the aircraft complete sans the engine. So if anyone's got a nice Griffin engine they'd like to uh, donate, we'd be very happy to have them. (laughs) Yes, because the rest of the aircraft is complete and we we could possibly power it up again if we had a, a nice engine to go with
3: it. We can see from here the uh, the radiator intakes and the wing uh, the wing center section. Something I love on these British naval aircraft is the catapult hooks for um, for punching the thing off the uh, off the catapult, painted red just under the center section there. It's just yeah. so solid. They're built really. So- the, the Firefly is a very solid naval aircraft, and it's very easy to forget that um, naval aircraft had to undertake a lot of other air- things other aircraft didn't do. Um, deck landing being the most common example of that. With um, you know they they basically were thrown at, thrown at the deck and 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 hooked on rather than landed as gently as possible so um, that's that's a real a real beefy thing but I think also Fairy were probably the Grumman Ironworks of the British Empire they built hefty um, solid aeroplanes and I think the Firefly is often a bit underregarded it, uh, it had a pretty good record in the latter part of World War II when it was yeah. in service um, greater than attack aircraft and also obviously it's, it's service in Korea and for us as, as Dave would relate, it's a very big Commonwealth aircraft, very important to the Australian Navy and the Canadian Navy, as well as the British, Dutch operated them, and, and many others. But um, we're looking at the cockpit now, which has got the gun sight fitted, I see, and uh, the seat with the traditional bakelite, um, you know, period plastic type uh, type setup. Um, it looks tempting there, Dave, doesn't it?
4: It's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, imposing beast. But when you sit in there, it, it doesn't feel it. Obviously, it's, it feels very small. Yeah. The thing that staggers me though is when you do sit in the aircraft, is the visibility forward of the nose uh-huh. and or lack thereof. Yeah. And I think people got to appreciate this thing sitting on a, on an aircraft carrier bobbing up and down in the ocean So you can imagine you've got visibility from zero to none. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's an incredible credible airplane just physically and the other side too is this aircraft had three crew as well, right? So you had two in the back of the aircraft, one facing forward, one facing backwards. One would have been the, uh, the observer. Uh, yeah, one would have been observer. The other one was probably a navigator type arrangement. Yeah. I
3: think on the, uh, the AS-6, which is uh, air search uh, anti-submarine role, and, and I'm sure there's someone from the, one of the navies here cringing even as we speak at our uh, uh, somewhat robust description of the role, but yeah, that would have been a sea search type uh, possibly. I think radar search, that had a radar pod on their wing originally. Because again, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dave, but I, I think this aircraft was actually a target tug. Model when it Correct. Was delivered, so yeah, modified? Yeah,
4: yeah. This, this, this was modified for target towing rolls and a lot of the aircraft towards the end of their, their service life were modified for the target towing roll. Uh, as the aircraft they were being replaced with were faster, yep. of course, yep. they still needed tar- targets to, uh, to fire at. So did this particular aircraft ever see any carrier service or was it no. just land based? No, this was a land based one, this one. Yep. Um, a lot of the carrier-based ones, what you'd, you'd, you would have seen, would have had the guns mounted or the cannons mounted in the in the, in the wings, right. as well as the radar pods or uh, wing uh, fuel pods, as well.
3: Okay. Well, that's all very interesting. But now we're going to hear Dave getting into the aircraft.
0: This is a very uh, snug cockpit. It's uh, it actually has a, a feeling very much like Spitfire doesn't
4: it? It does yeah well, that's my impression too that it is very Spitfire-esque I mean even the uh, control if you look at the controls there yep. it seems to remind you of the Spitfire type arrangement.
0: Absolutely and as you implied earlier the, the forward visibility is just like the Spitfire there's nothing in front of you. Correct so yeah. you can
4: imagine taxiing, landing, even throwing yourself off the carrier you took a lot of uh, a lot of guts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, because a lot of it was just purely aiming it and hoping for the best, I think, at some times. Yeah, yeah.
3: And we're just talking about unfolding it. This has a very interesting wing fold that the wings fold up uh, sort of parallel to the fuselage behind. And um, so they're, they're sitting upright behind us. And they they've gone a kind of a 45 degree um, hinge line, but uh, Dave was just saying
4: it takes uh, takes six six of you guys to move the wings? Yeah, about six people, because you've got to have uh, people to aim them, I guess is probably the best wing, and yeah. then you've got to control it as it comes down, obviously you don't want it to slam into the, the lock me- mechanisms and break the castings, so there's a lot of refinement to you actually placing the wings down. Um, one thing we're hoping to do in the, next, in the next period of months is actually bring the aircraft back outside for a photo shoot and do a couple of wing unfolds, which we haven't done for a little while. That would be
3: terrific to, to see, it, uh, see it all unfold and fold up. And then again, we're really sort of thinking, wow, that must have been pretty amazing to be doing with you know, maybe 12 or 20 of these things on a carrier deck. Uh, Obviously, some of them were operating in the Arctic and, uh, and certainly in the Pacific, in very hot conditions and so on. Those guys, uh, those guys spotting the aircraft on the decks, were uh, having a pretty challenging job. You could easily lose a hand or a finger, yeah. couldn't you? And
4: yeah. you think about, you know, even just the physical size. I mean, we're not exactly small or either, any of us. But you had a very, very small area to pivot a very large aeroplane on. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. again, we're under sea conditions, so it could be rough. It could be raining, or if it was Korea, it could be sleet and snow. Yeah. I mean, there was plenty of challenges facing these guys, and I, I do. I take my hat off to them every time. When you mm-hmm. see the photos of these airplanes in the service,
0: and the Ferry Firefly saw service over Japan, which a lot of yes. people don't realise that. Yes. You know, with the British Pacific Fleet, uh, earlier models than this one, of course, but um, they weren't, weren't terribly different. And uh, you know, over Japan in the latter months of the war, or later weeks of the war, uh, yeah, the Fireflies were there with the Corsairs and the uh, the Avengers of the British Pacific Fleet. Actually, Indeed, yeah, right, and, and, right there.
3: And as you were saying, though, the, the the later models look different, but aren't that the fundamental structure never changed. It's a sign of a successful design in a way. Um, it, but this has got the, the clip rather than around wing wingtips, and and um, radiators in the wings rather than under the nose. Yeah. Um, having said that, this, one of the neat things about the Firefly is it had the uh, ferry Youngman type flaps, which uh, were also used as a manoeuvring flap, very often overlooked by people um, who don't know about the aircraft. But they could be run these flaps. Could be run down and out behind the main wing, and then and then used either deployed as, at an angle or parallel to the main wing to um, to give extra lift or manoeuvring. So this is actually a very big, heavy airplane. I was just saying, but it's also very manoeuvrable. Yeah. Um, Dave's actually now sitting in the cockpit, as, as we, were, uh, we were hoping, and um, as that, we were just that's saying... That's me, Dave, not, not yeah, the we, other Dave. We have a Dave confusion here, <laughs> yeah. don't we? Uh, I think we might have to call Dave Soda Soda yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and so, yes, uh, our host is sitting in the cockpit and um, uh, we can see here that uh, he's not got a huge amount of view forward. It's well-placed for the gun sights, directly where he wants it to be, but not in a crash. You want to have your straps pretty tight, otherwise you're going to lose your face in the gun sight there. Um, and then the conventional um, instruments. Can you talk
0: through the cockpit perhaps dave well as i said it's uh, it's quite snug uh it's um yeah actually, actually it's <laughs> earlier today i had to uh, sit in the uh and, oh you got, and this, got to sit in the
3: weirraway did you and, yeah and, and
0: this feels <laughs> this feels a lot smaller in fact i looked at the Wirraway. i looked at my feet and i thought. I'm going to need to have uh, some sort of platform shoes to reach the uh, yeah. reach the pedals in there because it's a big old American aircraft style. I mean yeah. it's Australian built, but it's an American style. Indeed. And and this one, you know, the the pedals are right there, and I'm a little short guy really, but. Um,
3: no, uh, it is very... I mean, I'm looking in and, and you're pretty snug there. I think my head would be uh, probably a little high on the mm. uh, on the canopy line. But uh, in it, fact, they did raise the canopy. The early yeah. model had a lower canopy. In
0: service, I'd be sitting a bit higher because I'd be on a parachute, of course. Yes. Um, and I'd be able to see through the uh, gun sight a bit easier. It's, I'm looking up at it at the moment. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got the uh, the throttle box on the on the left here and we've got the, uh, the standard sort of British panel
3: that you yep. would normally yep. see. And... Um, Quite an array of, uh, of switches down by your um, right hand there. Of, um, um, I'm reading off here: bombs, nose and tail fusing, safe, uh, salvo, uh, port, starboard uh, distributor, um, G45 camera. You've got an option for cloudy and sunny. This is a British aircraft, isn't it? Automatically set to cloudy. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: and rainy. And rainy. Oh yeah, but don't
0: don't forget that this is this was an Australian service. So. Yeah, uh,
3: yeah, so that's why the cloudy sunny old yeah. ship. <laughs> Correct.
0: <laughs> now, actually, can you tell us a little bit about uh,
4: the Firefly in Australian service and, and what, what, just a basic
0: overview of the...
4: Um... Yeah, well, I think that we, the Australian Navy flew, I think it was about 78 of them originally, yep. or it might have been more. I, I, I'll stand corrected, but it was a fair few. Um, the type obviously flew with, uh, with the Navy in, in Korea yep. uh, alongside the Sea Fury, and they were flown off HMAS Vengeance and Sydney. Yep. So we had two carriers down there. Uh, they were also th- uh, flown off British carriers as well. So Australian squadrons based on British aircraft carriers.
0: Oh, right. OK, I didn't realise that. Yeah,
4: so there was... I think it was the... Oh, uh, look, I can't remember exactly the name of the carrier now, but it, look, it was one of them anyway. Um, most of them had either the K or V uh, registration on the tail. Yep. It didn't signify from which carrier they were from. Yep. K being Sydney. And... Um, Look, they were very, very... I mean, the aircraft lasted in service quite a long time. As we said before, it was used to the later part of its life as a target-towing aircraft. It was fast, manoeuvrable, so of course it gave the the, gunnery gunnery training pilots something to aim at and chase. And this would be the jets chasing, I guess? Yeah, so you'd have, with the introduction of the Sea Venom, uh, the Firefly was basically phased out. Right. Um, but I think there was about ten or so that were converted to target towing aircraft, and most, and strangely enough, most of those, ven- uh, most of the uh, Fireflies in the country are ex target towing aircraft. Right. They were the later ones in service. They survived the longest. And by that time, museums were starting to take off with, around Australia. You know, if you go to some of the other museums, you'll notice there's even one up at Camden still in its original target towing livery, right? Complete right. with the uh, target towing um, banner mechanism and everything in. underneath it. Which makes it a very unique aeroplane, just in its own right.
3: Absolutely, and I I, I wrote an article a number of years ago now about target-tug aircraft, and it's absolutely fascinating researching it... uh uh, I think I tracked down that there was one occasion where someone was uh, significantly shot up by uh, someone shooting at his banner very inaccurately, but as far as I tracked down, nobody did get shot down. And if any, any listeners know of any real major incidents, I'd love to hear um, the facts because uh, those sort of things never really got very well covered. Target tug work was um, very much a sort of uh, an overlooked part of the history. But we're sitting here, and it's exactly as, as Soda's just said, um, we are sitting between, we're on, in one aircraft and between two other aircraft that really survived, partly because of this museum, um, critically uh, that the museum had been set up, but also because they were in target tug service. So we have the uh, the, the Sea Venom behind us and the, and the Bowfighter, which we will continue to mention until we mm. get to it, because it is a very exciting part of the collection. Definitely. Yeah. But the, the, the interesting thing, um, just to, to uh, follow on what uh, Soda was just saying, um very interesting about the Australian Navy use is that one of the problems that uh, um, Australia and Canada in the British Commonwealth had was that they didn't have fleet air arms during World War II. They were um, they were all um, uh, Air Force or um, they were they were naval aircraft, but they were usually operated either by the Air Force or some other setup. No carriers of uh, Australian or Canadian, obviously not New Zealand neither. After World War II, Australia and Canada did set up a, a carrier force, but they got to a point where it was just impossible to um, to fund and support what you needed. You, you had to have enough carriers to have one out of service, uh, and that was, that was always a, a big ask. So both Canada... And Australia spent a period in the 50s and I think if I remember right into the early 60s with with carrier forces but eventually downgraded. And it's funny I mention that now because that's one of the challenges the British are facing now in in terms of the way this has moved on in that um, they've now got two uh, major carriers uh, under construction but um, it's, uh, you know, compared to say what the US deploy, very small beans. Yeah,
4: exactly, exactly.
3: Well, shall we move on to the next aircraft in the collection?
4: Yeah. So, Dave, we've walked past uh, an aircraft that we're currently restoring, uh, which is our C-53. And people say, "What's a C-53?" That's a military version of a C-47, but that's specialized order for the U.S. Army Air Force. Right. So, this aircraft here, VHANH, was its civilian registration. It was originally built for U.S. Army Air Force service. Uh, it was then converted for civilian use by ANA in 1944.
3: That's Australian National Airways for people who are not familiar with ANA yeah.
4: Correct. Uh, and then flown for many years with ANA until ANA was purchased by ANSET And as you can see it's still in it's ANSET livery now. Uh, what we're doing with the aircraft at the moment is giving it a really big birthday. I mean the aircraft uh, was delivered here yep. uh, by, by flight and donated to the uh, museum at the pricey sum of one dollar. Wow, okay. So uh, big money, big bickies back in those days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. That's when a dollar got you a whole uh, DC-3. Got you a whole DC-3, <laughs> yeah, which, is, yeah. which is pretty cool. I wouldn't get you a DC-3 but,
3: now. Never had that offer in a, uh, in a, in a shop I've been in. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the purchase price, and this is a point in terms of the whole museum, the purchase price is actually the easy bit, um, whether it's uh, you're paying pounds per kilo of, uh, dollars per kilo of, of, uh, of scrap value or you're, you're buying the aircraft, but that's the easy in. And then you've got to look after. We're actually standing outside now, outside the, um, the main museum hangars, uh, surrounded by uh, large transport aircraft. And... Large transport aircraft don't get preserved very often because they're big, they're awkward, they're civilian, they don't have the military excitement for a lot of people. Um, But as as, uh, Soda's just been saying, this aircraft has a fascinating history. And um, uh, what I can see is uh, the the wings are off it, the tail's off it at the moment, um, but they're being worked on elsewhere, I believe.
4: They are. I mean, the aircraft, as I said, has been sitting outside for quite a number of years now. So it's time to give it a bit of a birthday in terms of giving it a really good conservation program. So the aircraft is going to be uh, preserved back in its original Australian National Airlines livery. Terrific. Which is which will make it a very unique display. There'll be no other air, ANA displayed aircraft in the country. Right. And we think that's a pretty fitting tribute to the aircraft. I mean, it spent most of its life with it, yeah. the airline. So let's put it back and give it its uh, its real history.
3: And and DC threes or C 47s or. Uh, Dakotas, depending on where you are in the world, Gooney Bird, of course, um, they're all historic now. Of course, because they, they've clocked up the hours, but this one has its own particular, very important history too.
4: Well, that's right. I mean, you know, having flown in the Pacific and being used by Pacific forces, and then the long continual airline use here alone. I mean, that makes it pretty special in its own right. Um, the program will see the aircraft return to a ground running exhibit. So, which, which again makes it pretty unique. Um, the aircraft fitted with its original Wright Cyclone 1820 engines, which is unusual, which is very unusual. Um, does make it a bit of a nightmare servicing, of course. Yeah. Parts and components for those aircraft aren't exactly something that comes around very often. Um, but look, it's like everything. We'll get there. It just takes time, and the other, the other important aspect, money. Absolutely. And Absolutely. lots of it.
3: money and and also sweat I mean you've got a very strong volunteer force that are making things work and um, we're actually I think going to move on now out of this wind into um, one of the uh, the aircraft where you've got a particular volunteer doing a particular thing let's have a look at that
4: sounds good Welcome aboard our TAA-Liveried Vicamp, VHTVR, or in its previous life, one of Fidel Castro's private aircraft. Wow. wow, that's really quite amazing, isn't it? It is, it makes it a very unique exhibit. Absolutely. Gosh, it's actually quite roomy in here, isn't it? It is a, it is a roomy aeroplane. I mean, you've got to think this was sort of the evolution of the passenger aircraft, you know, from, from a piston-powered aircraft to a jet turbine-powered aircraft.
3: Right. So the museum, uh, one of the great things about the collection here is it's very comprehensive in terms of uh, uh, Australian heritage aircraft, but that's also an international heritage. I mean, not very many people can claim to have a a Cuban Air uh, aircraft, or, uh, or indeed one flown by a very notorious chat, but um, you can also point to a, a whole history of airliners you've got some some light feeder liners from the 20s and 30s here a DC2 DC3 um, this the Viscount and right up to a, a 737 Ford fuselage which is uh, uh, you know a lot of us will probably are oh, 737 you know it's common as muck but uh, this is an early one and, and um, it's it's fascinating for people who fly regularly today visiting the museum to see what an early 737 uh, cabin and cockpit would be configured like but this is fascinating too as a contrast Big windows,
4: big, big over, window, over, over windows and uh, lots of room. As we said, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm six foot two myself. So I can actually stand in here quite comfortably. Yeah. James, you're, yeah, you're standing here reasonably comfortably. Well, that's the first time I've stood upright on
3: an airliner for many, <laughs> many years. <laughs> yes. I have to say. I think there's about a foot between my head and the roof. <laughs> yes,
4: poor little Dave. <laughs> <But> so <it's, laughs> yeah, so this aircraft, um, it's, it's actually got a besides the the, the uh, Cubana uh, history. It's actually quite an interesting one because it's the second uh, VHTVR registered Viscount for yep. TAA. The first one was actually uh, rejected by TAA, and there are photos existing of te- the first TVR at uh, Farnborough Airfield yep. when it was on display uh, up for the air show there. Uh, so, as I said, the aircraft was rejected by TAA. Then, sometime later, they realised they still needed more capacity, and someone saw an ad in a local. Magazine indicating that Cubana had this aircraft for sale, right. and TA negotiated the purchase of the aircraft, thinking that everything was right to go and if everything was, uh, you know, flightworthy and ready to roll. Yep. So they dispatched a, uh, a flight crew down to Cuba to go and pick the aircraft up. The aircraft was uh, was told was hiding around the uh, backside of the, of the hangar. So the the flight crew went around there and discovered the aircraft was missing engines and vital flight components. Oh dear. So the aircraft that was uh, signed, sealed and delivered and ready to be flown wasn't quite that way. (laughs) Oh dear. So then a a lengthy program uh, was instilled to get the aircraft back to flight worthy condition and bring the aircraft back to Australia for operation. Right,
3: right. Do I understand correctly uh, that uh, some of the guys working on the aircraft was actually the aircrew, the, the pilots?
4: Yeah, well, they needed to—they needed as many people as they can, and the aircrew had to hang around, obviously, to fly it out. So they picked up some spanners and
3: That's really got the aircraft I- going. Generally, a bad idea to let a pilot have a spanner, isn't it? Dave? <laughs> I'm not touching that
4: one. <laughs> James said that for everyone listening. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. So should we move up the front? Yeah, we'll the move conference? up the front and uh, have yeah. a look. Dave, James, here we are. We're sitting in the cockpit of the uh, of the Viscount now, and probably something that the listeners probably can't appreciate without seeing is, originally, this aircraft was a stripped-out Hulk. So, after retirement from TAA, the aircraft was gutted. There was no instrumentation, no seating, no wow. nothing. So, you can see there's been a lot of work done to bring it up to a uh, displayable condition. Absolutely. Even to yep. the point now that you can see in front of us, we've got the overhead panel light up, lit up. We've got our fire warning panel all lit up. Uh, we've got yep. the uh, indica- under, undercarriage indicator working. So there's a lot of systems we're slowly bringing back online. The aircraft's pretty much as it would be on standby for a quick turnaround back to Sydney or, or Brisbane or wherever it was flying to. Right. Uh, you can hear the hum of the aircraft in the background. So yep. again, it's, sounding, it's, it's basically in a state of readiness. Right. Unfortunately, the aircraft will never be able to uh, make any noise again. The, uh, the main spars were severed when they transported the aircraft. Uh, so it's just it's just too fragile to run any engines and create any large vibration through the airframe. Right, right. But as you walk through to the back of the cabin, you'll notice we've got some display cases there now showing the hostess uniforms, some TAA Viscount member beer, menus, flight safety cards, promotional material, brochures, etc. Uh ticket stubs. So we try to give people a bit of an insight as to the whole thing, the whole operation involved in the aircraft, not just you know the people up the front like we are here now but also the people in the back of the cabin to even just the people who flew in the aircraft. And
0: it's, it's really uh, well kitted out and displayed and uh, you know the Viscount was a, a really important aircraft of its era around the world wasn't it? Very much so, yeah.
4: Absolutely, I mean, I mean the original 700 series or even the 600 series which was the first of the aircraft, they were successful but they had some design flaws and they made good on those design flaws and the 800 series that we're sitting in here, uh, was, was the final version, and probably the best version, in terms of had a long range. Um, if you actually look outside on the aircraft and underside wings, you can actually see where the slipper tanks were okay. designed to slip onto the aircraft, or again, extending the range of the airframe. Right. Um, but, as we've been going through the aircraft in recent times, we've, had a, we've got a really good crew here. One of the guys is an uh, electrical whiz. He worked on aircraft most of his life. And he's brought the aircraft up to a stage now, like we said, we've got the overhead warning panel showing the fuel boosting pumps, cabin altitude, etc, etc, that's all lit up now. Are those red lights worrying, Dave? Are we going to crash? No, no, they're just letting you know you've got fuel and pressure. Oh, that's a so good thing, So that's all right. Yeah, okay. Now, we, we can continue. the concerning thing would be that we've actually got fuel and pressure in an aircraft that hasn't run for a while. But... <laughs> so we're just playing with those, those lights just, those lights stay on. Even yep. the uh, the overhead, overhead cabin lighting, this all comes on. works we'll dial one of these in overhead panel should work there it goes there we yes. go So we've got lighting in the
3: cabin and I'll just put your pitch in here when we say overhead we really mean overhead we're sitting in the we're pilot gonna... seats and we're craning back to see these ones directly above us here um and uh it's a it's a fascinating uh panel I mean I my area of interest is World War II aviation primarily and, and I'm, I'm not so hot on my airliner so apologies now to our airliner enthusiasts but I'm looking at what to me is very much a a post-war, late-war configuration of uh, throttles and uh, and the instrumentation looks very. I can see going on to Hercules, but it's got a very British feel about it. Of course, as 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 you know, you can generally know which country you, uh, country's design you're sitting in. But yeah, we've got the background noise. We've got all the, the switches and throttles are working. We've got the control yoke coming back and forth here. You might just have heard the a little bit of noise there. Yeah. You wouldn't hear that over the sound of the uh, the the the, uh, the Viscount wine, as the advertising had in the day. But seeing these lights lit up, you, you, you kind of might read about it, or maybe even hear it on the um, on the podcast here. Go, oh, that's not a big deal, but it really makes the aeroplane feel much more come to life. And it's yeah. great to have your guys able to with those skills and knowledge. Um, generally, a bad idea to mess around with le- aircraft electronics unless you know what you're doing.
4: It is. It is. I mean. One of the things that we've tried to do here at the museum in, in recent times is to bring as many of the aircraft to a standard where there's at least some sort of inter- interactivity for people. Um, which is terrific. Which which has two benefits. One, it's actually easier to maintain the aircraft that's got some sort of live part to it, it means it requires more regular maintenance. So yep. that gets people actually in there and, and overseeing uh, maintenance on the aircraft. You're
3: paying attention in more You're detail. You're paying attention
4: in more detail, exactly. And the other side of it too is kids. I mean the kids appreciate something that's a bit more bit more interactive. And one of the things we've done here is we've got the overhead fire warning panel all lit up, showing the uh, we've got oil pressure low and things like that. But again, this is if the aircraft was sitting in a standby position. Uh, even down to, and I'll give you guys a bit of a warning now, we have a fire warning test bell. Oh, testing for fire. Um, testing we'll do a just a quick, quick test to make sure everything's working. You wouldn't miss that, would you? Oh, I think that's uh, working quite well. It does sound a bit like
3: grandma's um, uh, doorbell, though. It doesn't does a it, little as bit. Well. Yeah, yeah. Very
4: <laughs> British, maybe. <laughs> it's
3: very, very British. Uh, it's terrific. I'm, I'm just looking at the uh, the rudder bar. Well, it's not a rubber proper, proper rudder pedals. Here we've got the um, the star wheel in the middle to uh, move the. Uh, the pedals forward and, and back, and I'm presuming we've got—is uh, it tow brakes just above them yes, there? Yes, yes, tow
4: brakes for the front for the nose wheel. You can um,
3: one of the great things I think is you can see the heritage, how aviation has developed through stages. You know, this is not that different from a heavy four-engine World War II bomber, a two-pilot layout, and um, we even have a, a, a trim wheel down by my right hand in the pilot seat, uh, the, the captain seat here, which is, looks to me like it's made from bakelite, that great aviation
4: is. material. It certainly is, not doesn't it look like something you'd see in an Avro Lancaster? You do, yes, yeah. and the other
3: thing, we, the other reason we know it's a British aircraft is I've spotted my piece of wood. They have a piece of wood on each side of the, the little um, movable uh, quarter-light windows um, to as, as the handle. That is just such
4: a British thing to it do. It is. It is. And actually, if you look forward back, uh, further back, there's even a wine rack. Just behind us here. So I don't know what's more 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 concerning: the fact that there's a bit of wood on an aeroplane, or there's a wine rack just after the pilot seats. I'm <laughs> gonna have to look really hard for the
3: cigar rack if fidel was here on a regular basis.
4: Well, let's let, let's let's just imagine the smell of that beautiful Cuban cigar, <laughs> about now, gentlemen. Terrific.
0: I, I just want to ask you, Dave. You know, there's a lot of skill was gone into bringing this back to this uh, standard, obviously, and so you know skilled people were involved including yourself where does your uh, background lie with uh, with aircraft
4: look in all honesty I have I don't work in the avi- aviation industry I'm not a pilot I'm just an enthusiast but my job uh, involves working within agricultural sector right. so getting on the tools fixing things selling things Um, You can
3: drive some pretty big scary machinery I I understand. Yeah
4: yeah, I can drive some big heavy machines and and in saying that it probably gives you some skills to do other aspects of working on the aircraft I guess. Um, You know everything from painting to you know bolting something together. I mean at the end of the day aircraft's just metal and and nuts and bolts holding it together or rivets. So certainly one of the things that I've learnt here is the skills involved in terms of say riveting uh, that's something I'd never done before. Uh, I was, you know, one of my projects I did uh, last year was working on the monocoat for the uh, CSU Boomerang that we're restoring currently. Yep. Learning the riveting skills there, learning, you know, all the sheet metal skills. And that's certainly something that I appreciate. It's nothing. It's nothing I've ever done before.
0: Right, and of course you're a volunteer.
4: Yeah, I'm only a volunteer. Same as as all of us. No um, such thing
0: as only a volunteer. It's
4: <laughs> Quite. I mean, well, well, I call this place my mistress, (laughs) Uh, because I spend more time here than I do at home, so, (laughs) luckily I don't have a partner to disagree with that, so.
3: (laughs) But it's it's a good point, I mean, um, this museum, like a lot of museums, really is driven on the volunteer base, and... um, uh, as you've just touched on, you've got, so you've got a great mix of, uh, of people who have aviation experience and skills, um, which, is, which is a vital uh, asset, but by transmitting those on um, to showing people like yourself and other people, uh, I think perhaps one of the scariest things here is I've actually you know, um, scrubbed back some uh, of the metal skinning on that DC-3 out there and the patch doesn't look too bad. If there's anything worse than a pilot working on an aeroplane, it's, it's a journalist working on an aeroplane. We're even worse than pilots. and that's <laughs> a as bad. Or a salesman. <laughs> even, yeah. even worse. But, yeah, it's, it's great. And I think one of the things that um, Ashley Briggs uh, currently, I believe, uh, is he, what's, what's his title? He's, our, he's our chairman. Chairman. So. Um, one of the things that Ashley's been doing, and we'll be talking to Ashley, is uh, making sure that we're getting young people involved as well. It's not just uh, an ageing uh, ageing population of uh, volunteers.
0: Well, that's right. And uh, obviously, you're fairly young yourself. You're, n- you're not one of these crusty old guys that you see at museums usually.
4: Uh, I Dave's d- only 21. Dear. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> no, look. I mean, I feel old. Tell you what, you spend a, <laughs> spend a day working around here. Sometimes you go home, and I feel I'm about 70. I tell you what. <laughs> um, But yeah, look. I guess for myself, and and probably I don't know if I can speak for the other volunteers, but one of the things is we're only custodians of these of these aeroplanes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't own them, we're just here to share our passion and teach people and hopefully bring people in to learn about our passion and hopefully pick up the passion and run with it too. Well, Absolutely. I mean, as you said and alluded to, people are getting on, um, you know, veterans who, who flew and, and operated these aeroplanes, they're slowly passing on now and yeah. they, I mean, and, you know, the World War II uh, era guys, most of those gentlemen now are sadly gone and yep. now we're into career and vietnam and those guys are getting on so we've got our own sorts of veterans now you know veterans from the gulf afghanistan etc yes. etc those guys are coming through and 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 i guess uh, one of the things that i feel re- really privileged here is when we do get a veteran coming through and being able to talk to them and actually listening to their stories that's probably one of the most humbling things I've i've ever had here and and sometimes it does. It gives you a real chill up your spine listening to these gentlemen explaining what they went through. You know, I, I spoke to a gentleman who flew our Weir away, as an example. Right. And he crashed his Kitty Hawk in uh, North Africa and, using the clock out of the aircraft, navigated his way out of the desert for six days.
3: Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, you got
4: to think, these guys are really hard guys. Like, mm, yeah. And I'll never understand that. I never, I never got that privilege. I never got that... Uh, Privilege. I, I never was in that chance to, f- to fight for my country I suppose but it's our job to try and listen to these stories and relay these stories.
0: Exactly that's the whole basis of a museum like this and particularly an aircraft museum is um, as you said you've you've come along with your own skill set you've learned new skills yep. and, you, and you can then pass them on to the next uh, younger volunteer that come along and you pass on the stories of the aircraft and the people who flew them.
4: You have to I mean uh, as I said, I mean, I've, I've been with the crew here now for uh, three, four years, whatever it is, um, and it's funny just the stories that I've been told and listening to those stories and recounting them to guys like yourselves who, yep. who may not have heard them. I yep. um, another great story I'll quickly mention is our Beaufort. we met the pilot of that aircraft um, on its last day of service within the RAAF. Wow! It was it was being flown for a beer run of all things. <laughs>
3: That's very Australian. Very Australian. Australian. Force, yeah, very uh, Australian Defence Force. Um, very and important and part of the Australian Defence Forces, providing the essential course. requisites of life.
4: Of yeah. course. And 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 he recounted the story. He said, you know, I had to pick up the squadron hack, which this aircraft was at the time. And by this stage, it had seen many years of hard hard service. Yeah. And he completed a beer run with a he- with an overladen aircraft.
3: An overload of beer. Overload of beer. so surprised.
4: Yeah. Well, that doesn't sound like an Australian thing at all to do <laughs> either. So he proceeded to take off. Um, got, off the, got it to the end of the runway and still hadn't actually got the aircraft off the ground yet. That's said, not a good thing. He said the next thing he knew was the propellers were cutting the cooney grass on the off the edge <laughs> of the runway. He slowly got it up and got it up to the... He said that the highest they could get the aircraft to fly to was 1,500 feet, which is probably not a good thing around PNG. There's mountains, <laughs> there's mountains at a couple of hundred feet. So, yeah, um, yeah it, it's, it was a bit scary for him, but he said the aircraft was a ride-off after that, and he was the last guy to fly it. It
0: actually sounds like uh, it was a very important mission, though, for that aircraft to, to carry that much beer.
4: Well, you know, he said to me that there was no knuckle cranny spared. So he said they were on the bomb bays, they were in, the, <laughs> we were in, the gun turrets. <laughs> they said if they could fit this case of beer, there was beer. No, yeah,
3: not missing it. There, there's a very famous story in Australian aviation history, which I think most Australian aviation people will know, but anybody who's listening here who perhaps doesn't know this story, so. If you know what's coming um, which was that very famously a war um shot down what they thought was a zero we we now know it was actually another japanese aircraft and an oscar um but they managed to shoot down a zero and uh, which was a pretty amazing feat with Correct. two uh, two 303 caliber uh, machine guns and uh, the the um quite a quite a good job but um the telegram said uh, shot down zero send six bottles beer uh, which again i think brings us back to the essentials of the australian uh, australian defense force but just to pick up on what, uh, what Dave Sider has been saying there, I think that's a really good point. I think one of the dangers with museums like this um, is to see it as um, an unfinished project. People come along and say, when are you going to finish restoring that aeroplane or that aeroplane? Um, but it's actually a journey. And I, and I think um, it's something I've you know had to learn over a long time is that, as we've just been saying, gradually restoring this cockpit to active with all the bits and pieces, you can still hear that you know whine in the background. You can probably hear um, some switches being flicked, if I do it correctly here. You've got, uh, you've got detents over some of the switches, you've got block switches being worked. Absolutely fascinating seeing that this can be done. You don't want to be having, you know, someone here wailing around just, just breaking things, but it's great that kids, you know, it's not a big sacrifice if a kid comes into this cockpit, flicks some switches and goes, wow, I could do this as a career. Um, and that might be what I do when I grow up. That's, that's a very important part of what the museum's doing, but also, as Dave's just said, capturing the veteran story, capturing the, the airline veteran stories, often overlooked mm. those guys, um, the ground crew stories. And, and the other side of um, uh, maintaining the aircraft and looking after them because you're maintaining them is you're actually looking after the maintainers too. You get retired guys getting, going home after a lifelong career working on aircraft, they get bored. One day they come to the museum and uh, three years later they're still working on still stuff working. Yep. and they're probably living longer too. They're, yep. they're happy, they're enjoying themselves.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean we've got we've got some guys here that come down here who are probably not in the best of health too. Yeah. But why do they come here? Because they absolutely love it and they're yeah. passionate about seeing something through that they've started on or working on. And want to see the finished product? Well, as we all do.
3: I believe you actually have a gentleman who's uh, worked here, driven some rivets on the DC3, I believe, who um, started his career in pre-war Gloucester Aircraft Company. Is that correct, Dave?
4: It is correct, uh, Don. He, uh, when we were working on the on the DC3, he was a he, he drove rivets in Gloucester's factory in the UK. And uh, we said to him, we said, when was the last time you drove a rivet? He said, oh, Jesus, it's got to be about 70 years ago. <laughs> so uh, we got him up on the side of the aircraft and he drove a couple of rivets in. And i tell you what, the smile afterwards. Yeah. You could just, I, I mean, this, this gentleman's probably, uh, I'd say he'd be in his early 90s. Yeah, he's
0: he an had an absolute
4: truck. spring in his step after that. Yeah. And that was pretty cool just to watch. I so mean, and they're the sort of things that you, the average person probably doesn't get to appreciate or see. But you know as as a volunteer or you know one of the people that that volunteers and works here you see that and you go home afterwards and you go wow that was pretty cool absolutely I mean actually the thing I'm thinking there, I've met Don I was
3: there on that day and it was a pretty special day (laughs) it's a funny thing it's a pretty special day to see a guy drive a couple of rivets which is not what you'd expect in the morning but um, it's bringing the aeroplanes to life and in a way it's bringing people like uh, don to to life as well not that he wasn't firing on a lot of cylinders already but as you say that really made his probably his year never mind his week you know
0: so if anyone out there who's listening um wasn't really too aware of the museum but they're interested in coming along now after hearing
4: all this and becoming a volunteer um, what should they do? Well, they should uh, look up the museum website. So it's aarg.com.au, and we have a uh, a contact us page there. They can look up. Um, there's always members down here. if They want to come down even during the week when when I'm not here or someone else, and they can fill out a membership form and become a member straight away. I mean, there's always something to do on an aeroplane. Yeah. You know, whether it be and and look, nine nine times out of ten people think yeah, you know, aeroplane restoration is glamorous. Nine times out of ten it's cleaning and scrubbing. Yeah. That's Unfortunately exactly. that's the reality of it. The other side of it of course is you know the history side. Um, but then you know you go and look at as we talked about before our DC three, that's an ongoing project. And you're talking a two-year project minimum there, just yeah, to get it up yeah. to display standard again. Yeah, yeah.
3: But you'll you would be you would become hands-on on the aircraft pretty much straight away. You'd be given some briefing and Absolutely. instructed about what you can and can't do, is in terms of safety and yeah. good good practice. But uh, very much very much hands-on, very much involved. And uh, the danger, guys, is it's addictive.
4: It is. It is a very addictive club, and and I will call it a club because I guess it is a club of sorts. Because you do you come down here and you make. You make friends with people that you yep. wouldn't normally probably associate with from all of walks of life i mean we've got people who are accountants to uh people who actually work in the aviation industry of course you know they don't lose their love of aviation outside of work yeah uh, because they get to work on something different
3: yeah exactly. um or something that they worked on in an earlier career as as, as well which is correct. which is neat too
4: i mean and we've as we said before we've got a collection here that is so varying in british american australian You know, everything, there's a lot of different uh, aircraft here, and, you know, some people have a real preference to a particular type, of course, that's fine, and some guys here, that's just only want to work on that aeroplane, and I can appreciate that too, because that's their thing, and we don't discourage that, I mean, there's guys out there today working on our gannet, that's what they want to work on, so off they go. Right. So it,
3: even ugly aeroplanes have friends.
4: They do. Oh, it's not that ugly. Oh, it's no, a little bit ugly. <laughs> <laughs> the gannet is special,
3: isn't it? It's only, there's nothing quite like a folded gannet looking more broken than anything else. <laughs> yeah,
4: it looks like they've stacked the wings on top of itself. Yeah, It's <laughs> uh, right. just an odd-looking British design, James. Indeed, indeed. Yes.
3: <laughs> so, if we were to go from this particular aircraft, what would we pick up next, maybe, Dave?
4: Uh, I think we'd probably go... We'll go let's, let's step into the modern world and let's go and have a look at an F-111. Terrific. Yeah, awesome. Alright, gentlemen, so this is our uh, F 111C cockpit module, which we took delivery of about three years ago now. Uh, We haven't got the whole aircraft, unfortunately. Right. But as you can see, just looking at the cockpit size, uh, the proportion here, it is a very sizeable aeroplane. Sure is. Um, If we had taken the whole aircraft on, it probably would have taken up uh, one half of the the hangar we're in right now. Yeah, So, But this is on loan uh, uh, from RAAF Heritage. We don't actually own the the module, but they come in and support us with what we need and and we've built a display around it now, highlighting the aircraft service. um, And the F-111 is very, uh, how do we say, probably in the hearts of a lot of Australian aviation enthusiasts. Absolutely, and Kiwis too. And Kiwis, yeah, Yeah. well we did go down there quite a lot with the F-11s and one of them in particular, the spectacular uh, double flame out down there (laughs) and the guys ejected on the runway, which this cockpit module was never designed for and that probably leads into probably the the single most interesting part of the aircraft is it didn't have ejection seats like most fast jets, the actual module itself detached from the aircraft and a parachute system would actually extend and bring the aircraft, well, the module down back down to Earth. Right. And a pillow would explode and deploy from underneath uh, the, the module and they'd land somewhat comfortably. Or float if it was over over a, uh, over a sea operation where they had to eject.
3: Right. I think that the, the rider to add to that, it's a fascinating piece of technology in that you're you're dealing with a um you're moving a larger, much, much larger mass. Your, your problems are multiplied by a factor of uh, 10 to 20 in terms of you, you're moving a big chunk of aeroplane apart and then you have to slow it down and then you have to uh, to, to get it to settle on land or water as appropriate.
4: Yeah. I mean, if, for those who don't understand or realise why the, the cockpit module was designed in such a way, uh, the aircraft was originally envisioned as a high-altitude nuclear strike aircraft. Okay. So they were flying extremely high altitudes. And the theory was that if, a, if the crew ejected at that height, their chance of survival was virtually nil. So the co- designers came up with this concept that the cockpit e- uh, example would e- eject. Both crew are contained in it. They've got all their ra- safety rations, provisos that they'd need to survive. The radios would still work within the, air- within the module if they were uh, floating in the middle of the ocean. And it gave them somewhere to be, I guess, like in a stable environment, rather than bobbing around in the ocean with a flight jet, ju- with a flight suit on and a uh, life jacket. Right, right. So it becomes a, a really well-equipped life raft, in the same. Effectively, own- yeah. And and another thing that made it pretty cool is is the joysticks actually turned into rudders, so they could actually paddle the craft forward and backwards. Wow, so that's, that's very innovative. It is. It was uh, the whole system was designed with the crew's safety in, in mind. There's almost a naval component to yeah. this Yeah! <laughs> well, they
3: were going to fly off carriers, weren't they?
4: Well, they were. I mean, the F-111B was designed as the carrier version, um, but it was just simply too heavy. And it was back in the days when they were trying to have one type to do multiple roles. Gee, that no sounds dissimilar. a little
3: familiar to a modern aircraft. We won't mention it We won't we mention it. But no. yes, absolutely. It's well,
4: a... we don't have modern aircraft
0: in New Zealand, <laughs> so we don't care. <laughs> you don't mind that.
3: But yeah, I mean, going back to a point we touched on earlier about it being close to the heart of, hearts of Kiwis, I think the F-111 for people outside Australia, it, it, it's, uh, as Dave uh, Sater just said, it's... Uh, very close to the hearts of lots of Australians. It has a, a huge following, particularly in Queensland, uh, Brisbane and, and so on, because they were so familiar with them there. And it's a really interesting contrast because, of course, when the aircraft was first ordered, it was late, it was slow um, on delivery. There was over cost, as, as military aircraft in that era often, today often are. And uh, it was roundly condemned. And yet we got phenomenal service. And it's important to remember it was Australia. Two countries operated the F-111, the Americans and the Australian uh, Royal Australian Air Force. Um, we thankfully never had to use ours in anger and an argument for this kind of aircraft is you have this kind of big stick and you never do need to a- mm. use it in anger. Ours were never nuclear capable, I mean I think most Australians are aware of that but people overseas might not be. It is a nuclear capable bomber but the Australian Defence Force has never um, seriously considered nuclear capability. Um, but that kind of relates into to what we were talking about earlier and that it's on loan um, just in case someone decides to turn it into an active nuclear-capable bomber by adding a lot of stuff back to this module. So, Dave, can you tell us a bit about what you have to do at the museum to uh, to have this online? It's a big challenge.
4: It is a big challenge. I mean, Defence Heritage have set some pretty uh, stringent uh, parameters that we've got to adhere to, and, and rightly so. It is their asset, so they, they can deem what we can and can't do with it. Um, I mean, we... We submit a report to them every couple of months relating to visitors who actually enter into the cockpit. They want to see how many people are actually getting interactive with it. And that's why we have it here. I mean, we've got a platform, we can get people into it. We've got protection for the sides of the paint, a little step for little kids to pop under and and climb into the cockpit. I mean, at the end of the day, this is what we're trying to do again. We're trying to inspire people into aviation and what better way to do it than you know, putting a young kid in there or even a teenager who's seen Top Gun one too many times and Absolutely. wants to play Maverick and Goose?
3: Yeah, yep. yeah in fact when we had the uh, the museum had the open cockpit day, uh, I got roped in briefly uh, to uh, to help out relieve somebody else who was covering this aircraft and I'm not sure whether it was the small kids were more excited, well actually no, I know, it was the big kids who were more excited to sit in this. I think Australians of, uh, of a certain age, it was, it was the thing they saw uh, on TV whizzing by and of course the other thing it's very famous for in Australia which some of our overseas listeners may not hear, but I know our Kiwis will be aware of, is the dump and burn routine they had with this. Um, it's uh, it was a thing that the uh, RAAF, I believe, pioneered. The Americans never really did it. Um, and uh, that's a great example of your tax dollars at work.
4: Absolutely, and an impressive way to, to burn tax dollars too, I must say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, um,
3: was. Everybody was always excited.
4: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for, for, the, for those who don't know what the dump and burn is, just explain it. Yeah. So the, the rear of the aircraft had a dump valve in between the two jet engines, and of course in an emergency situation or where they needed to get fuel exited out of the aircraft quickly, because obviously it's a very heavy aircraft yeah. in its own right. Mm. So uh, one of the party tricks that they Quickly learned was by putting the afterburners on and dump and releasing the dump valve at the back of the aircraft. It made a pretty impressive airshow stunt with a great and, huge flame. With a great huge flame, huge flame at the back. Probably,
3: I think it's probably fair to say a third of a kilometre long or thereabouts. And and I know from air shows you could feel it on the ground as they did a, a mm. standard yeah. flyby. Yeah. Um, and they did it a lot at uh, something called Riverfire in Brisbane, where they Correct. fly down the, the middle of the river and and uh, and do that. Uh, Pretty amazing stuff. And
4: Absolutely. we won't see that ever again, sadly. Yeah, sadly we won't. I mean and, and I can understand, you know, the F one eleven enthusiasts, you know, they, they are pretty disappointed we don't have a, a party trick like that now, but the other party trick these F one had too was noise. They were sheer noise. Absolutely And uh, I know for a fact I've got a, a friend of mine who works in the RAF and he's on the Super Hornets that's replaced the F one eleven. And it's actually funny the F the F eighteen F is actually louder. Than the F111. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they've got certain parameters they've got to try and maintain to keep the noise level down to appease a the local residents around Queensland. But if you put the uh, the F18F at full noise, it's actually considerably louder. Wow, that's quite amazing. Because I I remember
0: seeing the F111 uh, at Wanaka and at Parnuapai when they visited New Zealand air shows, and you know in, in that small circuit around an air show uh, mm. perimeter mm. with a with the Suddenly, that power on, and and my God, you'd
4: you'd feel it through all the way through your body, wouldn't you? Absolutely, it it, it was. It was probably. I mean, anyone in the aviation circle will will gladly agree that the F one eleven probably put on one of the most impressive displays in recent times. Just, oh, just in its sheer noise, power, physical size, yeah. and of course the dump and burn.
3: And there's something else we haven't mentioned which we should have done is this swing wing capability. So you could actually have it flying past with the wing swept back at high speed and, and swept forward, and one of the party tricks of a formation was to actually, you know, show the aircraft in, in both configurations. But just to pick up on a little bit we've got here is it's very easy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a props kind of guy. I mean, I'd, yeah, jet noise, that's kind of cool, but give me props. However... One of the things that's really interesting here is that the museum is, is looking to the future of preservation as well. And um, one of the dangers is you concentrate on the really old stuff and you don't look at what's being retired you don't look at uh recent retirements from the military or aircraft that are that are you know like the 737 Mm. that uh, come out of service you you, you can overlook them and it's great that the museum has got such a modern well basically just out of service type Mm. uh in the collection and it also works in highlighting the development through time of the um of the aircraft collection we have here
4: absolutely i mean i mean we've got a as a, as a board member, which I'm part of, we've got to actively look at what is the future and what, what is types that we do have to look at into the future. You yep. know, what's got relevance to our collection? Um, certainly higher in our collection in types that are due to be retired within the forthcoming years is a F-18 Hornet, yep. uh, the classic version, and the uh, PC-9. Both right. aircraft were manufactured here in Australia, so it's got the Australian component behind it. You know the the, the F-18 is actually the last lineage to CAC before the CAC factory was disbanded effectively. Um, That's a very
3: important point, it would be easy to overlook for an Australian aviation enthusiast not seeing that heritage because of course now that doesn't exist in that way at all. Um, And and I think something behind what we're talking about is that this collection here is one of the most important collections of Australian aircraft in, in the broader sense, whether Australian operated Australian-designed or built, and all the varieties. And um, also, I think credit to the museum that it's but diverse. It's not just military, but it's a very solid collection of uh, of civil aviation, light, a- light mm. general aviation. Just behind us, in fact, we have a, a very modern uh, a drone, the, uh, the the Kingfisher 2, which is. Uh, something that I worry about seeing in museums, but I guess we've got to have them, haven't we? I
4: guess I guess we do too. I mean, it is a part of aviation. You know, we, yes. Okay, it doesn't have a pilot and, you know, it's a guy sitting there having a, key, a, a tea and a bit of biscuits while he's flying an aeroplane, <laughs> which is probably a little bit disconcerting to most people, but that's the it's, modern way. It's, well, I mean, it's we've part got, of the history.
0: Right, just over there, similar size we've got a link trainer. That doesn't fly either, but it's also part of military history. There in aviation exactly military, right. so. yeah,
4: yeah. And I, I think that, you know, James is right. One of the things here that's happened over the years is the collection has been very focused on the Australian component of, of the aviation industry and we've tried as best to preserve what we can um, and we've got to maintain that going forward. There are types that are going to need to be preserved. I mean there's some airliner types that's due for retirement in the next few years. Goodness knows where we'd, we would put one of those right now, <laughs> but we've got to look at these things. I mean uh, this is all part of, our, of the story of aviation heritage in Australia and we've got to tell it some way. Whether that's the, taking the whole airframe, a section of it like we did with the 737, whatever, um, it's important to try and preserve it. I mean, at the moment, one of the projects we've, we're all involved in at the moment is trying to fundraise to purchase a CAC-built Mustang. Yes. It's probably the only chance we're going to get to purchase the CAC Mustang. And the Mustang is a beautiful aeroplane. No one can deny the, the, the classic lines of the, of the aircraft or the P-51 for those overseas who don't understand the CAC built version is exactly that it's just a, an Australian built version of the mustang and
3: thus vastly better in every possible of way of course we're of not course. patriotic about it at no, all? no 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 Dave's mate Dave, Dave Homewood our host is making a very
4: polite kiwi face at the <laughs> Aussies here but yes moving along moving along but yeah that's a, that's a project that that we're all passionate about it's it's another collection uh point to the CAC lineage which we've got nearly an example of every type of the CAC built aircraft um, so we are out there trying to raise money, and it's a figure of $350,000 that we're slowly ga- gaining and putting funds towards. But for those who are out there listening, I'd probably encourage you, if I can, just to get in there and actually jump on our website. We have a donate button. Yep. Okay, I understand money is, is, is important to everyone, but whether it's $5 or $10, that money is going to buy something and preserve something that is history, in the making, history that's going to be living, we're going to turn that aircraft into a ground running exhibit, so it's not just another dead aeroplane, it's a living breathing part of history, so I do, I encourage everyone if they can to get behind us in this Absolutely. absolutely. I
3: think think, um, one of the things they've they've done very well here is to hit an early funding target with with, uh, a stage of that process, haven't you? We have,
4: yeah. I mean, we've set ourselves goals of of, of stages of funding, as James alluded to, um, which we've agreed with the owner, who's being extremely reasonable in in that regard. Well, he's got a Mustang. He could get an awful lot of cash for that. Absolutely. I mean, look, being a CAC type, it's an early CAC Mustang. It's a CAC-17. So the aircraft is A6871. So being a a Dash-17 model, or CA17 version. It's a very early, t- early built uh, CAC aircraft, CAC built aircraft, and I, I really feel that that aircraft has no better place than here. Not just because I work and, and, and volunteer my time here, but purely on the aviation heritage display, that aircraft sits so well with what we try to achieve here. Now,
0: just um, I just want to say, you know, you're the Australian National Aviation Museum. You're talking about uh, fundraising. And you've got the two key words there, national and museum, but you, you're you not actually funded by the taxpayer? Not at all.
4: No, we get no government funding, no local or state funding, um, no federal funding. So everything that we do here is done purely on revenue from people coming in and visiting the museum, from fundraising, and... People like myself actually generating and putting our own dollars at, up and, and buying things um, you know it's not unusual that we might have to go and buy some paint or some metal or whatever it is and we all reach into our back of our own pockets i'm no millionaire by any by any stretch of the means i can i can greatly assure you that but i guess my passion is to see things happen and to see something preserved if i can say that i did something to help preserve something and, and display it for a future generation I think that's something I can be proud of going forward.
3: I think that's a, that's a really good point you picked up on there, uh, uh, Dave, that um, we don't have a national collection in this specific sense of... Um, uh, one museum in the country. We do have some other collections, which some, several of which we'll be visiting, which have particular focuses uh, that, that are great, um, military on one side perhaps and, and so on, but um, this collection is very diverse. There's a couple of other collections i would give a nod to, um, but uh, I think it's probably fair to say, most people probably agree this is the most comprehensive and, and diverse collection of Australian orientated stuff. Having said that, I think a point to bring in here as we're standing next to F-111 A lot of inter-museum cooperation is critical and this F-111 is here in part because um, a a combination of of volunteer museums, non-government museums got together and said, look, you guys can't just um, bury these remaining F-111s. What had happened was that the government had allocated a number of... um, F-111s to national collections, um, and uh, mainly sort of air force uh, related uh, collections. So the Royal Australian Air Force Museum has two F-111s, uh, one on show, one one currently in store. And they were going to bury the rest, I believe. Yeah, correct. Uh, and, um, and a combination of museums. I think probably a tip of the hat to the Queensland uh, Aviation Museum was one of the key leading certain people there to, to push that. And then they got some very good support from the then Minister of mm. Defence, I think. Um, but a lot of that was lobbying and and and, uh, and I think and I'd probably put my hand up here myself. I didn't think they could do it. I think I thought yeah. asking the Australian government to uh, allow nuclear-capable bombers into private hands around the country wouldn't happen. I was wrong. Uh, the guys managed to do it. The, the requirements are stringent. The aircraft, the full aircraft, several are full complete mm. as well as the module here, have to be hangered. Uh, they're on a regular inspection basis as, as Dave touched on with this one. There's a very stringent requirements of what they can and can't do. Um, but the end result is that around Australia we have a bunch more F-111s on show. and um, so. Credit to the, uh, to the volunteer-driven museums to make that happen.
4: Absolutely, eh? and, and uh, James is right, I mean, we, we saw a type that was probably going to be preserved maybe with about five examples world, na- nationwide to now where we've got, I think it's 13 or 14 preserved aircraft right. in type. So that's not a bad strike rate for an aircraft that we flew 24C models and 15G models. It's well, not anyway. a bad preservation rate right, if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, that's and, good. And that's something that gets lost on a lot of people, I think, today, that if you add up the total numbers operated and the total numbers preserved, it's actually a very good strike rate.
3: Yeah. I think perhaps for any American listeners or European listeners we have, that's those 13 aircraft are spread over an area the size of the United States or the whole of Europe. We're not talking 13 aeroplanes in, in a place the size of, say, the UK or mm. uh, Iowa.
4: Yeah, exactly. And, and you've got them from, you know, little country uh, museums. So, you know, one there's one situated up in Darwin, right at the very top end of Australia, to examples in South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Right. So, that, you know, it's, it's well represented as a preserved aircraft. I
3: think for me it's learning to love the F-111. <laughs> Well, I learned to love it a long time
0: ago
4: <laughs> but there's another
0: aircraft here that I really love too that's just behind you there James and that's the Bowfighter.
3: Yeah, well, I think we should head over
4: to the Bowfighter well,
3: with Dave but I think we'd like to drag uh, somebody else in to yeah, talk we, us about that as well. So. I think
4: we probably should pass the baton on and we'll get yeah. you and he's actually sitting under there at the moment working on it and that's his baby. He, it is, uh, isn't it? Yeah. He certainly loves that aeroplane and, and look guys thanks for your time it's been really good I uh, hope you enjoy your tour around here Dave. And Well thank you too and uh, I think
0: don't we want to ask Dave a question?
3: Ah, oh, yeah, very important question we're asking people, which is, um, what if you were to take one particular object from the museum, not personally, but to pick, like you said, about uh, if I could preserve something for people, is there one particular thing here that you would pick and you would say this is the thing that matters most to me? It might be important to you personally, or it might be something you feel it would be, should be important to other people.
4: I do. I have one particular childhood memory. Um, when I was uh, little, I used to be babysitted by my grandmother and she lived near Essendon Airport in oh Melbourne. Yeah. Yep. And at the time, a company called IPEC Aviation used yep. to operate a fleet of Armstrong argosies British-built heavy uh, transport aircraft, yep. and they were used for Trans-Pacific, uh, Trans-Tasman uh, freight routing. And of course, they were Rolls-Royce dart-powered aircraft, so you could hear them coming a mile away and you heard them still a glorious. mile away when they'd taken <laughs> off. So <laughs> My childhood is is sitting there watching those things take off and land and listening to them every time and unfortunately none were preserved as an entire aircraft in Australia which I find kind of sad because they did have a a long period of history of operation here but here at the museum we actually have a vertical tail and the undercarriage assembly off an Argosy and the IPEC one in particular and every time I go into that container and see it there, I just sort of look at it and go, there you are, old girl. It's yeah. sort of a, you know, a little little, little tear, I guess, in some regards, but then again, I look at it and I think, damn, I was lucky to see what I saw. I, I
0: remember seeing uh, the, the Safe Air ones
4: flying in and out of Woodburn when I was based
0: there in the Air Force. And they are a special aircraft. They're a, they're a strange, interesting, special kind of aircraft.
4: Well they didn't get the name Whistling Wheelbarrow for nothing, I mean that design that design says it all and the whistling bit, well if you ever heard one and I encourage anyone if, if you get a chance just look up an Armstrong a, Argosy on YouTube or something like that and listen to the noise, it's yeah. just it's a pretty special old girl. <laughs> Um, so, Dave, we've moved across from probably a, uh, a strike aircraft that uh, was used in the fighter-bomber role to another aircraft that was used in much earlier uh, similar role, the Bristol Bowfighter, or here, a DAP version, yep. a Department of uh, Government Aircraft Production. So here we are. We've opened up the, uh, the crew access ladder, and as you can see, it's not exactly the most ergonomic design, you know, There's a wow. little handle here that swings down and we lock the steps into the position. One of the things you'll notice as you do climb into the aircraft is it's not actually easy. And you got to remember, you've got a flight suit on and a parachute in parachute, there in a minute. Yeah. And you'll see as you climb up and put yourself under the top of the w- front of the wings spar there, it's not exactly the most manoeuvrable airplane to get into. Right, okay. So uh, I welcome you aboard and uh, no, I I'll, what I'll do is I'll, head, I'll pass you over to Ewan. Ewan's the museum secretary. Uh, Ewan has a, a real affinity for the Bowfighter and he'll probably give you a bit of a run-through and, and some more in-depth information. Brilliant, okay.
0: Well, I'm sitting inside the Bowfighter, which is really a huge thrill, and I'm here with Ewan MacArthur. Hi, Ewan. How are you going? Good, good. Good. Tell me about this aircraft.
2: Uh, this aircraft is uh, number A8328. It's a uh, Australian built DAP Mark 21 bow fighter. Um, it never actually saw active service. It was delivered on the day that the Pacific War ended. Right. Uh, then it went uh, off to be an instructional airframe, being used target tug, uh, and then finally made its way down to the Portsea beach at the Lord Mayor's Camp, where it was used as a children's playground attraction for years until it was recovered by us in 1965.
0: Right, I've seen the photos of it lying in the sand on its belly.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Fortunately, the undercarriage had been put away um, correctly, so it was easy enough to... uh, it out when uh, it came back here for uh, reassembly okay the only bit that was bad was the uh, rear of the fuse which the little boys had used as a toilet and was um, completely <laughs> rotted out
0: <laughs> so this is really one of the earliest aircraft from the collection
2: uh yeah certainly within the uh yeah so the the, the war period and certainly as far as the bombers go um uh, and in terms of the collection starting and oh yeah this is the first one this is the one yeah. that really kicked it off yeah. so uh yeah absolutely and uh, it's still very much a draw card because there's only uh, probably half a dozen bows left in the world, and uh, this one is still technically live, uh, can still cycle the uh, props quite happily. We could t- we can actually turn it on, but um, yeah, being inside, it's not a good look. Um, right. But all the flaps work, The uh, all the bits and pieces are okay. We're hoping to uh, bring more of it back online over the next year.
0: Fantastic, and uh, so that would be possibly some engine runs at some stage?
2: Yeah, we're desperate to get it out and run it again. Yeah. I think everybody is, actually. There's, uh, nine times out of ten, you put a picture of the bow up on uh, Facebook or something, and you know, the inevitable question, is it ever going to run again? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is.
0: <laughs> and that's got the mighty Bristol Hercules engines, hasn't it? Yeah,
2: it? that's the biggest problem. Um, the uh, the right-hand side is a standard Hercules, is fitted to the bows. The left-hand side uh, port engines, the. Um, uh, it's actually from a freighter, so oh, it's a yeah. slightly slightly different one, uh, which just means a bit of um, you know reworking to uh, get that up to speed. The problem that we've got too is the port propellers came from an outside wall of an RSL, and they're quite heavily pitted, so we do need to get new props. Um, right. Either we're lucky to find a good, you know, a good set, or have them made. But you know, there's a lot of expense involved with that. Right. Uh, some people have said to us, you know, why don't we just replace the engines and turn it into one of the Merlin-based bows? But it, that requires a lot of back engineering. Across the wings and all of that sort of stuff. It's yeah, it's probably really not worth doing in that regard. We want to try and keep it as original as possible.
0: Exactly. And the the Australian-built ones didn't have the Merlin,
2: did they? No, no, not as far as I'm aware. Um, So it was just the uh, it was always the Hercules. So yeah, it's amazing that there's so few Hercules engines. Left, um, I would have thought they would have hung on to a few more than they actually did. But it yeah, yeah. Uh, looks like they all went to the scrappers at some point.
0: Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the history of the Bow Fighter in Royal Australian Air Force uh, service as a type.
2: Uh, it was very much a uh, popular bomber in the um, World War Two in the Pacific campaign. Um, you know, numerous squadrons, particularly thirty thirty one squadrons, were uh, you know, heavy users of the aircraft, um, and you know, the Japanese were. Known uh, to call it the uh, Whispering Death, uh, purely because the engines, you really don't know, you don't hear it from the front, but right. you know, coming at you from you know, when you hear it going past, you know all about it. Yeah. So, and also being the 10 gun Terror um, with the uh, four cannons in the nose and the uh, remaining six guns or torpedoes, depending on the type of uh, application it was being used for. Um, so, yeah, but they were a very, very uh, popular aircraft in that regard. Certainly they were um, considered one of the best fighters around.
0: Absolutely, and of course the bowfighter fighter as a type saw a lot of uh, service in in Europe and Absolutely. Medi- Mediterranean and Absolutely. Burma or everywhere, yeah. wasn't
2: it? It, it? Certainly, they did the rounds. There's no question about that, um, and you know they're, they're widely widely considered uh, to be you know one of the better better fighters. Uh, we were lucky; we had a 93 year old pilot here on. The 10th of November, um, which was, uh, well, it was last Wednesday, and uh, very sprightly guy. He got up in the cockpit, no problems at all. And he turned to his son and said, Oh, what's today's date? And his son said, Oh, it's the 10th of November. He said, Oh, that's 70 years ago to the day that I was shot down in a bow fighter. He was 19 yeah. when he was shot down. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was truly remarkable. So, you know, we got to hear the story of, you know, he got sent off to the Starlag and uh, he was made a prisoner of war, swapped IDs, and escaped, and went back to work for the RAF again.
1: Wow. But, you know, Again,
2: he, he had nothing but high praise for the the, the bow uh, as an aircraft. So, they, I think always, you know, you look at sort of uh, the aircraft in terms of being able to get in and out. You know, as, as we've just done, we've clambered up through the belly. Um, you at the front, me at the rear. Yeah. Um, but there was another way, obviously, getting in through the front up via a ladder. Um, yeah, if, if you pranged one of these things, you'd have to get out pretty fast. Yes. Uh, had a uh, propensity to sink, but fortunately they had the dinghy in the wing um, and the salt immersion switch in the nose too, which obviously shut the engines down in the event of a uh, water-based landing. So, yeah, uh, yeah, really, um, yeah, it's a special aircraft, still my favourite in the collection. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah well, that's great. Uh, it's just an absolute sod to clean.
0: <laughs> How long have you been with the collection?
2: uh me myself yeah. in the museum I've yeah. been here for 3 years now <laughs> okay and I've ended up finding myself in the role of secretary um so secretary in publicity really so it's really it's it's a huge task to undertake but we've really sought to redevelop the museum and um bring a lot of the aircraft back online and make it a a more interactive thing i think far too many museums have um uh, sort of the aircrafts that are set behind barricades and, and that sort of stuff. We're more a case of, not get in there and have a look at it because that's you know, we want you to experience what the pilots experienced. Yeah. You know, and some of it's a bit terrifying, you know, a bit confronting for people. Um, you know, aircraft like the bow we keep locked up, but you know, if people ask, we're happy to let them in um, and give them a guided tour. That's always yeah. the, the the way to do it. Fantastic, fantastic.
3: We've got James here in the in the uh,
0: bow fighter now too. Hi, James.
3: Hello. I've just uh, managed to climb a up w- without. Uh Getting too confused, but it's interesting. It's a big aeroplane, but there's not a lot of room inside. It's I, call it, I actually
2: call it the reverse Tardis for Doctor <laughs> Who fans, where they say it's bigger on the inside. It looks enormous on the outside, and you get in, and it's tiny and it's very cramped. It's yeah. If you were trying to do something quickly, uh, there was every chance you'd probably nut yourself Absolutely. on the roof going through. So yeah. that's probably why they've got these you know good cushion pads up here for the the plotter nav and and, and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's it is very cramped.
3: There's not a lot of room, there's a lot of things sticking out. I've been in a lot of um, World War II aircraft over my career and um, I'd say it's definitely one of the most sticky-out stuff to catch you type aeroplanes. Um, And if this was fully equipped, you'd have Mm. the four um, uh, ammunition tanks. I think you've got one in position here at the moment and the the 20mm cannon. I should imagine sitting just just after the breaches of those cannons when they went off you'd know all about it it's a problem
2: well there was always the theory that you weren't supposed to fire them all at once in case the amount of reverse thrust would cause the thing to drop out of the sky but uh, we had another uh, bow pilot recently and we asked him that question he said oh no we just did and it just went backwards slightly and then picked up the speed and kept going on so you know they they weren't they weren't fast but yeah i can imagine it would have been particularly loud in here uh, with that sort of stuff going on uh,
0: or just sitting between two Hercules would be loud enough. You, you yeah, been... yeah,
2: yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You yeah. know, it's uh, I've sat in the back of the um, the Wirraway when it's run, and that's deafening on its yeah. own, yeah. even with the canopy in. And to think, yeah, you know, that's only a, a small engine compared to these monsters, yeah. um, it'd be really quite a sound.
3: For those not familiar with the with the bow fighters uh, detail, it, it, there's a great cliche, my favourite I think about the aeroplane, which is it's an air. There's a couple of uh, Bristol engines hotly pursued by an airframe, and <laughs> it's uh, there's a they're two huge radials, two row uh, radial engines, but the props are actually I think if I'm correct ahead of the actual um, nose of the aircraft. So when you're sitting in the pilot's position, you're you're surrounded by this engine, and you're actually behind the prop arc, which is uh, relatively unusual too. In um, mm. some ways, it's very comforting if you did belly one of these into an airfield, you generally took demolished anything in your way with the engines and probably came out of the other end okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The only, the only thing that was uh, occasionally known to cause problems was the spring-loaded uh, pilot seat. Um, there was one, certainly one incident that I know of up north where uh, the pilot got in, took off, and the spring actually broke and it actually pushed him forward into the control column, so the aircraft just dived into the ground and he was killed instantly. It's wow. um, you know, a very strong spring set that uh, locks the thing into place, so if that yep. breaks, that's yeah, that's trouble.
0: Wow. That's something you wouldn't really consider, was it? It's no. a, such a strange
3: thing. Yeah. And, and it's actually a very good point Nguyen's made there, a sad one, which is an awful lot of um, losses during the World Wars, both First War and Second World War, were technological errors like that where you know a design that uh, in peacetime would never mm. really pass uh, pass inspection or expectation um, but did go into service and often they didn't know uh, if you think about what Ewan just described and obviously to know what happened in that mm. case is quite a there wouldn't have been an awful lot left of the aeroplane or the, or the unfortunate pilot no, no. but um, there was a lot of those kind of accidents but Again, it's important to remember that the Beaufort a terrific aircraft, but it's a, essentially a modification of a design, another aircraft in the museum collection, in fact. Ewan, um, you know, do you want to tell us about its origins? Yeah, the Beaufort.
2: So that, the Beaufort was the, uh, the first uh, bomber. The one that we have in our collection is A913, which is the oldest Beaufort in the world. Um, it's currently undergoing a long-term restoration. It's a very, very long and drawn-out process. Um, we do have enough to, to actually build nearly three complete aircraft. We've got wow, that no many problem. parts that we've managed to acquire and have been donated. So. Um, it's a, Yeah, look, again, It was a, th- that was a medium to long-range type bomber. Um, it was used for escorts, lots of escorts, uh, that kind of thing. And by the end of the war, it was being used for what they call the milk run, which I think was just transferring beer supplies to yeah. various bases and, and stuff like that. Um, they had problems with certain parts of the um, control column assembly too, uh, which Tony Clark's been doing a lot of research on. Uh, it all boiled down to a single... A uh, single pin, I think it was, right. and caught, that caused multiple accidents. Yeah. Um, you know, they, were, they were so bad at one point that the training bases down in Gippsland they were known as Gippsland hailstones because they were basically <laughs> dropping out of the sky, at a pretty heavy rate. There's a, there were a lot of crash uh, sites down there um, at the time. So, uh, yeah, but it was certainly a um, yeah. The, the bow fighter was uh, a big evolution forward. Um, you know, and certainly didn't have the uh, the glass front. No. Like the Beaufort.
3: The Beaufort was normally a four-crew aircraft, yeah, whereas this was the Beaufort is always two. Yeah? Yeah, um, You'd never could, fit anyone in. You'd get more people in here, but it would not be a comfortable experience. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no,
2: no. One, of the other th- one of the other stories we got told during the week, too, was um, in the Beaufort, sometimes if they were being pursued in uh, New Guinea, was that they'd actually have um, uh, another gun down here, which would fire traces to the Japanese. Scare uh, gun. Scare gun. Yeah, oh, they'd no, actually really? have it mounted. God only knows where, I mean, you can see here. They probably had it mounted up here where the, um you can see the nav has a, a breather space there. Right. Uh, and that sort of thing. And that was another accident that would often happen too, which one of our, the pilots who came here reported. Um, and we've got the canopy lid here for the plotter above us. Um, if they didn't lock that down properly, it'd fly off on takeoff. Okay. So it would literally get ripped off the aircraft. Wow. So Happened a fair few times, a few people got heavy discipline for that, so... Yes.
3: It would make a bit of a bang, and you've got the tail surfaces behind you. And I think sitting here for the listeners, you and is wedged. I think it's fair to say into the
2: river. Oh, you I thought, I've oh, got I got stuck once trying to get behind the um, the radios behind me. Um, that took nearly an hour to get out. Um, yeah, you know, we're all saying it's all small, but I'm six foot six high and not quite as wide, but getting there. So it's, <laughs> it's a bit difficult to uh, manoeuvre your way around, even just to do simple cleaning. So yeah. it's a it, it is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a job, but um, no, look, I wouldn't swap it for anything in the world. Well, that's dedication, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I've left enough DNA in this aircraft to clone me. So it's <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific.
3: And um, we have one one uh, very important question mm. for you, and which is that uh, we're asking each of the guys we're talking to today, and as we go through museums in Australia, if they one particular thing in the museum, might be an object, might be an aircraft that has something special either to them or they think it might be important to Australia, Australians or even people of the world. What one object would you pick um, from the collection here? Very hard ask. He's, he's making thinking faces yeah, as you'd expect with that one.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's the, you just put me on a spot where I'll start <laughs> with this. Uh, I it's so hard to... I mean, I'd, I'd immediately come out and say bowfighter because of the rarity of it. You know, yeah. that's just a foregone... I, I thought
3: we were probably in it. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, but if I had to choose, uh, say, an object, for instance, um, it would be the Fokker DR1 tank that we've ah, got, yes. which is becoming more and more likely that it was the Baron's. Right. Um, you know, how it got to Australia is anybody's guess, but, you know, the, the basically all the research that we've done and everything indicates that, yeah, it's probably so one this of the, is,
3: this is a, uh, a, a fuel tank off, uh, which is definitely identified as a uh, Fokker fuel tank, yep. definitely identified as a Fokker DR1 yep. tank. Similar, I think, to the D8 yep. type tank, but yep. definitely different. Yep. It's got a number of uh, witness marks and dents in it that, uh, that indicate it was involved in a crash. And it's been
2: hacked out of the frame pretty cut. quickly, too. So, yeah, it kind of leans towards that. Um, too much time's gone past, so no idea if we could ever scrape the Baron's DNA off it. Probably unlikely so, you know. If but any reader has provenance for this <laughs> tape, we, uh,
3: we would love to hear. Yeah. Yeah, it
2: arrived it here in 1983. There was no paperwork or anything. They just didn't do that sort of stuff at the time. But it was coming out of somebody's grandfather's house who was going into care, and they thought we might like it. And um, as I said on the uh, Key Forum the other night, I came within minutes of putting it on eBay. As well as clearing stuff point.
3: out, even if you were to prove, uh, you know, ironically, and obviously you can't do that either, but prove it wasn't the Red Baron's mm. tank, as a piece of a genuine Fokker uh, DR, uh, uh, the that the triplane that everybody knows, the Snoopy aeroplane for those not involved in radiation... There are no surviving uh, uh, triplanes. I think they've built more replicas than they actually built the original ones now for air shows. But yeah. uh, no original ones, and the parts are very even. Parts are very yeah. rare. So on its own standing mm. as a DR1 piece, it's mm. it's very valuable, very rare, yeah. and it's terrific that you've got it in the collection. I yeah. think we also had another vote for that in the, uh, uh, from one of the engineering uh, skilled yeah. guys. He was going, yeah, that'd yeah. be my that'd be my yeah, pick.
2: Yeah. But definitely for yeah you know, for aircraft, I can't go past the bow. It's yeah, you know, she's a mighty girl, and you know it's a really. Um, I've been known to be here at 6am in the morning on a weekend just quietly cleaning it and you know it just it's just a really good spot to work in and uh, bring it back to life bit by bit and hopefully you know as we get along further and further you know more and more things get turned on. I don't think we're going to see one flying anytime soon. I think no, no. you know the realism you know they, they've talked about the one at Haas and uh, the one at Duxford's obviously stalled um, again down to engine problems yeah. and usual sort of thing. It is a massive undertaking by any means of the imagination. The parts aren't there, and it's just, you know, the upkeep of it would be a hell of a lot harder than, say, even doing the Mozzie or the Anson that got done in New Zealand, and they were yeah. stellar jobs.
3: Yeah. It's a very, I think, just to pick up on your, on your to pick up on your point there, you and know, I agree. That's uh, the, the guys at Ducks that have done a terrific job in restoring the airframe, as those that know, know. There's issues about getting the engines and prop combination mm. viable to work. Um, I never say never now. I've seen some pretty amazing things over the years. i, I had an 18 year gap in seeing mosquitoes fly yep. and uh, was blown away to see the, the, the phenomenal restoration done by the guys in New Zealand. Yep. Bill and Robin Reed, as you say, the boot bow fighter, I agree. And again, it's a, it's a complimentary thing. I think this is a very, this is definitely the jewel in the museum's crown, mm. um, although it's a terrific collection in the round mm. two. Um, and what you're doing here is also preserving in a different way. Let's hope the guys at Duxford or Haas get theirs flying, but this Mm. is always going to be complementary to that.
2: I think one of the things too that's really important, it's certainly an approach that we have, is that for us it's better to have it on the ground running so people can see it close up than doing manoeuvres and flying overhead. That's all well and cool, but sometimes you just want to see the thing actually right there in front of you and hearing the sound of the engines up close, seeing all of that sort of stuff, because you always run the risk when you take off, something's going to go wrong you're going to go into the ground, you're going to damage it and that kind of thing. And with some of the rare aircraft, like the Wiraway that we've got, um, the bow when it's finished and all that sort of stuff, if we prang that, that'd pretty much be it, and you're losing a piece of history, and I don't want to really see that happen. There are enough other flying examples. Yes. And that's probably, you know, the way it goes. Even the Beaufort that's being restored up at Caboolture... Yeah is essentially a complete rebuild yes. from the ground up, whereas the one that we're doing, it's a composite, the cockpit's from 150 because the cockpit of 13 was lost in a crash when yep. it, in New Guinea. The rest of it will be built with as much of the original parts as possible. And that's right?
3: a really important point, is that you're looking at both uh, originality history yeah. on the one hand, and, and operating aircraft too is a complementary thing, but something I'd like to ask you, because you're very much in the right place. You've really started ground running several aircraft in the last few years. Um, uh, I've seen the Wurruwe ground running here, the the series ground running Mm -hmm. here, several other aircraft, you've had people bring in their own engines. Can you tell us a little bit about your impressions of how people react to that ground running experience?
2: They absolutely love it. The uh, cockpit day that we had recently had huge crowds milling around the series when it was being run. Uh, The fact that they can actually hear... And see the thing being turned over really, really close. And the smell. Well. Uh, the smell of it is amazing. When we have the um, uh, cruisers. Uh, Hot Rod Nights. Uh, we turn the lights off and run the engine, so you got the flames flying out the side of the series, which is just magnificent. I don't
3: think they're easily impressed, guys, but you probably impress them.
2: They come over from the field over the road in droves. As soon as they <laughs> hear us starting it, you can just see this little wave of people coming at you. It's like, yeah, we got you. So, I, I think that yeah, it is a really, it's great for entertainment um, value, and obviously keeping you know the aircraft in good shape too. Yeah. You know, we had the there was a gap between when we first ran the Wirra for its 75th birthday, and then we tried to run it again for the recently deceased Murray Adams and had a TV news crew and everything went to turn it and just went click. And the starter seat completely, so that's why um, this afternoon just going into uh, into the workshop for 12 months to get the engine completely uh, overdone. We found three cylinders that got cracks, and yeah, yeah. it's just it's the ongoing maintenance stuff. That's so the,
3: uh, the, that's the um, setting up a TV crew effect, isn't it? It all yeah, works yeah, yeah. fine the day off. before.
2: Oh, <laughs> you couldn't have picked a worse time, but uh, you know, well, we'd love to get one of the um, recently uh, collected uh, Pratt and Whitney JT8 engines out, yeah, uh, and give that a run. Uh, might actually blow everything in the field you know, a little bit <laughs> further away than we'd like it but, you know, even so, it's kind of, it's, it's a good thing theoretically, we could get one of the, um, the Hercules that's actually on a display trolley we could get that mounted yep. and uh, do something with that as well so, you know, it's, you never say never with any of these things um, you know, we'd love to get our gannet going that's still completely, that's complete internally with the right. engines and that the panels are missing, but we can get them, they're in storage so, it, bit by bit yeah. yeah, I think
3: I think uh, Dave and I would. I'm sure Dave would agree with me here that you, you guys are doing a terrific job here. Yeah, um, absolutely. This museum is very close to my heart personally. It's the first aviation museum I, I came to as a probably about a three year old. Okay, um, I have a photograph of my father as a. A young man, half my age now, wow. in front of this aeroplane. So we, you know, we yeah. we are seeing the time passing. But yeah. as you were just saying to uh, to Dave Soda and and he was uh, he was saying, it's a journey. It's not a not just a destination. It'll be great when the bow fighters, but actually enjoying the experience of making it all. Um, work mm. when we when he came across you and he was working very hard and scrubbing out one of the uh, the belly fuselage panels and cleaning up some stuff, but uh, he says he was enjoying himself i, mean, yeah. get enjoying I do cleaning. i get I
2: get perverse pleasure out of doing that i mean the, some of the stuff hasn 't been cleaned since one thousand nine hundred and eighty three so we 've got a lot you know i 've been cleaning the guns out you know bit by bit, and that 's all you can do so yeah, it's it's good. It's actually relaxing. Um, dare I say it's therapeutic in some ways. Um, yeah, it's away from the normal thrust of daily life, which is not a bad thing.
3: Absolutely. So I think we, on that note, we can say if you need some, uh, some cleaning therapy, um, the museum <laughs> will be delighted to have you volunteering here. Yes, Joking aside, they're always looking for volunteers, always looking for help donations. Yep. You can get your hands dirty, you can get involved, and that if you're a long way from Arabin, which um, I know many of our listeners will be, you'll have a local museum who would just be just as keen to help, and the museums do tend to work together, which is a terrific thing. So after a, a bit of a, a bit of a mountain climbing expedition, <laughs> I'm now sitting in the cockpit of the uh, of the bow fighter in the pilot's uh, pilot seat, and it's definitely a unique experience. Um, first of all, you've got to get in, um, which with practice I should imagine isn't too tra- challenging. But uh, as you can probably tell, I'm a bit breathless after my effort there. It, it, it's it a happens. challenge. Um, and when you do arrive, you've got an amazing view. Ewan, Ewan's here. Sensibly standing on the wing, leaning over the top uh, in us here. I've got um, a big piece of plexiglass and a gun sight in front of me. Um, a big control yoke, throttles uh, to the left, and uh, uh, I think a non-standard panel. Is that, uh, is that normal?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a normal one for this one. So there are different variants too, which I've seen pictures of, which I'm still trying to work out because there was the... DAP Mark 21, but then there was also the references to the BD 43A, which I think wow. is the torpedo version. So right. it was a slightly different uh, panel design and layout. So, there, the, the yoke that you got your hands on, it's actually reversed to the Beaufort. Right. That's the big difference. They do look similar, but. Uh, as I made the mistake when I bought one at the uh, Attraction Treasure Fair thinking I'd got myself a bow fighter. Of course, it was a bow because the firing button's always on the right. Oh. <laughs> it's left on the uh, on the bow fit.
3: Right, yeah. So we have a firing button. Mm-hmm. Um, not the spade grip everyone sort of associates with British military no. fighters, but a, a big old yoke. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is probably critical to say is the view is amazing. It's very different to anything else yeah. I've sat in. Um, to my left and right are the big, uh, the big Hercules radials. Um, they're just forward of the... Of the nose of the aircraft, I get the feeling that if I've got my feet on the rudder pedals, they're about the level of the the back row of cylinders uh, of the engine. So when these props are turning, you've got a huge couple of discs there. It must be—if you picked up any spray or you're flying through uh, rain—that would be pretty amazing what you've got there. I think
2: so. Yeah, absolutely.
3: They're also big blind spots. Um, It's probably for a fighter or Mm. an aircraft used in in interdiction and fighter-bombing. it's got a terrible view in some ways. You mm. know, I've got no idea what's going on behind. There are rear view mirrors um, yep. as an option, but uh, I'm relying very much on my guy in the back to, to keep me out of trouble. Which is obviously what
2: the communications box is down there for the uh, you know, talking between front and back. In case down there was down on my
3: left here. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Um, by my elbow, I have um, <clears throat> two buttons, uh, one green and one red. What are they? they they're the
2: ca- yeah, they're the uh, slow running engine cut off buttons.
3: Right. Yep. So, so. The, and double throttles, of course, yep. two engines. Standard uh, standard rudder pedals as you'd expect, but uh, you'd probably take a little while to get used to no nose in front of you. You're arriving first at the scene of the uh, the battle, aren't Mm -hmm. you?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a bit uh, it is a bit uh, of a sort of a different way of thinking, especially because you know the smaller single engines, of course, with the uh, the prop and everything in front of you. Whereas these these big monsters, uh, yeah, you really uh, it's really there in your face as such.
3: I think the Australian ones had a Sperry provision for a Sperry gyroscope rarely fitted, and also a piece of armour plate. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to know yeah, yeah, there's armour ar- plate in front of me here.
2: No, there's no armour plate at the moment. Oh, no. But no, no. there would be in It's, back, it, yeah, it's, in, be it's in, in storage at the moment. I've been meaning to get it back up there, but uh, it's ridiculously heavy. Funnily so, enough. Yeah, yeah you'd expect that.
3: Um, down by my uh, right hand is uh, a couple of uh, trim wheels, but yep. unusually, and uh, I've not seen this before, uh, they're painted colour-coded for port and starboard, um, which
2: matches, obviously, the uh, slow-carb cutouts on the other side.
3: And the, and the throttle controls, yep. which is a very interesting and sensible, uh, sensible thing to have. I mm. um, don't know how much use they'd be in. at night. I can see there's little lamps there for, for night-flying operations. And Well, this is a, a neat thing to be able to do, to sit in, sit in a bowfire and look out, but I think the first thing... After the initial excitement sort of dies down, as you think, these guys went to war in this uh, kind of aircraft. It must have been they were young men, mostly mm. um, full of vim and vigor, and immortal in their own uh, in their own eyes. Absolutely, but uh, it would have been a tough tough aircraft uh, like, like them all to to survive the war in uh, safely. But they were they had a lot of they had a lot of their fingertips. There's uh, your four cannon, six machine yeah. guns. Um, oh, and yeah. when,
2: you, when you see some of the photos and even some of the rare footage that exists, just some of the maneuvers they pulled off in these aircraft were actually quite something.
3: Yeah, I think, and looking out to the wingtips, I I wouldn't want to see those under G loadings personally. But I'm sure if you're 19 years old, that would probably be
2: the furthest thing from your mind.
3: You, this for my money, is a lot more impressive than an F eighteen.
2: Yeah,
0: definitely.
3: (laughs) Well, thanks very much for uh, for talking us through uh, the cockpit here. I really appreciate your time today. More than welcome. As Ewan as said earlier, I think if, if you're coming along to the museum, you have a particular interest in seeing the Beaufort Ice nicely, who knows, you can have a good look inside, and uh, I think a donation would be appropriate. We're certainly making a donation today. Yeah, aren't we absolutely. Dating. Thank you very much.
2: That's right, thank you. <laughs>
3: So we're here at the uh, looking at the First World War display which is under development with uh, Ashley Briggs, the museum chairman. Um, this is one of the most uh, recent things you've been working on. You've got some very significant pieces in the uh, collection and you're bringing them together I understand. What's the story?
5: Well, it's in conjunction with the various 100 uh, year centenary grants underway across the nation. We're lucky to uh, be granted a small grant to develop this. Uh, and the museum does not have a complete World War I aeroplane in any way or form but we have substantial artefacts so we've decided to combine all these and to basically tell a story our story about World War One. Uh, we've got the BE-2A wing which is sitting there in original uh, fabric they're being mounted in, on a properly conserved display uh, we have the Kelly and Lewis V8 which is a license built copy of the uh, RFV8, which was basically built here in Melbourne in Springvale by a water pump company. That's undergoing a conservation uh, process at the moment. Uh, some of the other items we're working on, the mindset with this display is actually to lean towards a Victorian and Melbourne-based history regarding World War One, Right. Because as a lot of people, you know, some are aware, some aren't, the first shot of World War I was actually fired here at the port phillip heads in victoria as a german ship tried to sneak out of port oh okay yeah so yeah. the very first shot in anger uh so as a consequence there was other world war one issues because a lot of people leaned towards the western front and gallipoli etc so we're trying to bring the history home to teach you know local people local history regarding world war one yep. the fact that we had the german raid of the wolf up and down the coast uh the be2 fe2b were actually uh, used in submarine patrols along the coast I think they crashed both but they did go looking yeah they did <laughs> yes <and laughs> they didn't uh, find anything great. so we're actually doing a story of to the wolf and it's it's uh it's various uh, uh, adventures around Vic- the Victorian coastline and such like so and also from a uh human point of view we had Harry Cobby who was born here in Melbourne it was a World War I fighter race we're going to do a display on him yep Uh, One of the other artefacts, open to conjecture of course, but we believe that we have a, well, it is a genuine Fokker DR1 tank, which may have come back as a souvenir, and numerous people have allayed that it could be off Richthofen's aeroplane, and you'll never be able to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but if anything it's the mystery to the story and the what if, which actually makes things interesting. Absolutely. So yeah, so it's various artefacts all coming together, and it's like anything, it's the... It's not so much the piece you're presenting, it's the human element and the story you can actually, you know, attach to that particular item.
0: Right. Okay, now the um, BE-2 wing that you've got here. Yes. Is that related to the BE-2 that you were just talking about that was... Uh,
5: Possibly. We don't know. These wings were basically found in the 60s hanging in a roof in Geelong. And uh, they came to the museum, they'd been in store for 30 odd years, then we pulled them out and they hung on the wall here. Uh, basically just hanging off the gal wall, so we've taken them down, given them a thorough clean. So whether they're involved, they are BE2A wings, and apparently, according to Andrew Wilkie, uh, they're pre-production wings, so they're very early build wing. Very, so,
3: very rare, really.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and... Original fabric, original markings, really can't get rarer than that. So. No, no, that's it's
3: amazing. It's fascinating that in this World War I story, and I think I'd, I'd really back up what you're saying there, Ash, in terms of um, telling a local story, telling it from a different point of view to the usual Gallipoli Western mm. Front. Nothing wrong with commemorating and noting that, but it's also people really relate to stuff where it's their their place. Yeah, um, they can make a
5: connection. And yeah. that's that's the whole point, making this connection between us and, hang on, that's just down the road.
3: Yeah.
0: Exactly. and Yeah,
5: Kelly and Lewis. Hang on, they were building World War One engines in this country in you know in nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen, and everybody knows Springvale. It's where you go to eat.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating sort of stuff, and and I think also a credit to the museum for design. Okay, we don't have a World War One aircraft. We have some interesting things. We have some interesting things with interesting stories attached as you just said it's fascinating too and pulling that together as a as an exhibition Um, you're obviously doing a lot of great things with the museum here we've had we've had a a terrific time looking through um, and uh, you you guys have done a terrific job showing us around one of the things the museum's been doing really well recently is social media is that an important part of what you're about these days
5: absolutely it manages to connect to people who uh, would not necessarily be able to come down here and attend uh it keeps people it keeps you fresh in people's minds you know we we don't basically post massive things but just little tidbits all the time showing that museums always you know underway and things are happening and when we first had a our major change of management two years ago the museum's facebook page had 30 likes now i think it's heading towards 6,000 at this point in time uh and it's a great way to advertise you know you can it's a very cheap and effective way of advertising. In some ways it's probably affected other markets yep. as a consequence. Yep. You know, when you can basically connect to so many people so quickly. We've we've managed to put up posts like for instance last week we had one of the ex bowfighter pilots in there. That view within a couple of days has been viewed by over ten thousand people.
3: Wow. This was phenomenal. Any 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 way you cut it, it's, it's terrific. And I think one of the things where that worked really well for you guys was um, the seventy uh, fifth birthday of the Wirraway that you celebrated. So that was a great story. You want to tell us a bit yeah, about well, that?
5: That was the same. We decided that the museum's Wirraway uh, flew in nineteen thirty nine uh, in August. It actually flew a couple of days after World War Two had been declared. It was. It's the only pre-war Wirraway surviving. So. We decided to basically give it a birthday. The airplane had sat here very forlorn and run down for a long time, suffering not only mistreatment uh, but also various age-related aspects of, you know, 70-year-old airplane and various metals and alloys working against itself. So. Uh, we pulled it out, of course, like anything, the job was far greater than what we thought. And basically, <laughs> killed ourselves getting it
3: ready. You guys worked really, really hard. There was a lot of late nights by quite a. You were lucky you had a good team of people who weighed in, but uh, there was a lot more in it than you thought there was going to be, wasn't there? Oh,
5: yeah, yeah, yeah. We're having to manufacture large sections of, you know, remanufacture large sections of the sheet metal and airframe to get it all back together in time. Uh, open the engine base we, you know. the stupid idea of that we'd like it ground running on the 75th anniversary which fell on a saturday of its first flight so we opened the engine bay to find out somebody's helped themselves over the years and the complete engine bay was stripped bare so we had to build whole new you know systems into the airplane and as it turned out we we had the first ground run of the airplane two days before the official unveiling Uh, But on the day, we had a cake, of course. We had several ex-CAC employees here, including one of them who actually worked on the aeroplane. Wow. Yeah, prior to its first flight. And she behaved on the day, which was a relief. Started, (laughs) ran. But, you know, you can see these old fellas and they're just standing there and they're teasing a couple of their eyes watching this aeroplane and uh yeah so we we're able to present a very tidy clean aeroplane you know she didn't get a full restoration but she got a good conservation program which is still underway and you know this is what it's about it's you know the we're always a lump of metal in reality it comes back to the human element you can connect to these people and it, it brought them back to a lifetime ago you know it's just a special day for a lot of people and that's absolutely. what makes it all about you yeah. know
3: Terrific. Yeah. absolutely and we, we couldn't really, moving from the Wurraway, which is a, a highlight in one direction, we can't have a trans-Tasman program without having a little talk about the uh, Victor Air tour and his little mower in front of us. Tell us a bit about uh, the Victor Air tour we have here.
5: Well, of course, the Victor Air tour was produced by Victor Industries. Uh, Merv Richardson, who was the uh, original designer of the, the lawnmower, was also an aviation enthusiast. So they went into production of the Victors. I think they produced over a hundred and unfortunately, uh, the credit squeeze of the 60s, you had Piper and Cessna dumping aeroplanes into the market at less than you know, manufacturing costs to push Victor out of the market, and uh, move Richardson passed away. The rest of the board weren't too con- you know, interested in continuing in aviation, so they, by that stage, they'd moved on to the Air Cruiser, which was basically the four-seater version, which got rid of various shortcomings of the, the, air, the air tour itself. But of course, you know, they shut it all down, and uh, as history knows, you know, PAC picked it up, sh- shipped it all over there, and uh,
3: sold them back to us. Yeah, <laughs> sold them
5: back to us, and yeah, keep producing in various you know ways and forms even up till today, which is you know a great success story.
4: That is. No, it's and actually, you,
5: I think they've had more comebacks than Lazarus too.
3: <laughs> <That certainly laughs> that's hard, yeah. But actually, that's a, really, that's a really good note to pick up, which is that uh, we are very much here about the Australian production story and the history of Australian aviation here. But it's actually quite neat with Dave coming over from New Zealand here to be able to say, "Well, good on the Kiwis for keeping, keeping, uh, bumping along with some production there with a with an aircraft with a strong Australian heritage too." We're, we're yeah, proud I think, of the, uh, yeah, I think I think it's Kiwi good. Success.
5: Something to go one way because I think the Australians have pinched Lamingtons. <laughs> <laughs> Split ends, Russell Pro. you can have back. <laughs> Pavlovas is another one. Yeah, Pavlovas, et cetera, et far cetera. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, and
3: Farlap, of course. The pro game was going so well, it yeah. all fell apart. No, that's, but that's actually,
0: I, I just want to say the, um, the, the the whole air tour and air trainer thing, yeah. um, when it was brought over to New Zealand, uh, the chap who was really the driving force behind it was Pat Monk, who was actually a British guy who worked here in in australia and he moved to new zealand and he ended up living next door to me and i grew up next to him and um
5: remarkable man yeah, yeah and it's amazing he as he said he wanted he was working as a designer at cac and he wanted cac to take on the design and the board at the time thought it was beneath him which was bizarre and a I'd, bad mistake and yeah obviously hey it's like the fellow in 20th Century Fox he's, Said to George Lucas, "Merchandise, we don't want any of that crap. <laughs> you can keep all of that." <laughs> yeah. and, and amazingly, the New Zealand
0: government made the right move because they helped bring them over and yeah. and set up a production with um, setting up uh, New Zealand Aerospace as it was then. Yeah, yep. and uh, you know they went from there. And now look at them—they're building the. Uh, they're still going, building the PAC 750 XL. And yeah, um, you know that's a, quite a success story. I, I know that com- the company's uh, setting up. Um, in China now, with uh, a big production
3: line there, they're actually part owned by China now, but they're still a New Zealand company. So, well, as I said, I think. Um Manufacturing aircraft in the 21st century is a very tough gig and uh, it's interesting that in Australia we have uh, really rumps of uh, some area aircraft manufacture, um, I'm sure it, some of our listeners are very familiar with that but you know the fact that New Zealand can also do it is a credit to New Zealand and it's good to have that expertise because that's trained people too, it's about yeah. people learning skills.
5: Jobs, careers. Yep. Yeah.
0: And you've talked a lot about CAC and some of the other, DAP and all those other yep. um, companies that build a lot of aircraft here. In New Zealand, we're a much smaller country um, with really the only um, production aircraft factories that we've had were the Tiger Moths during the war because of the British um, training plan. And uh, then we've got uh, PAC and there's been uh, Alpha that's been making the Robins under license. And there's a few little micro light companies, but it's a really, really small industry in New Zealand. And for PAC to be going well, starting with New Zealand airspace, Aerospace Industries through to PAC now, for them to have been going for four decades
3: or so, that's quite a success story as well. Yes, yes. many comebacks, as Ash just said. I think. Yeah. yeah. Terrific.
0: And, it, and it, com- it all comes back to Australia with Mr. Victor. We actually <laughs>
5: we have one. Of, well, it goes back even further to Henry Milanser, of yes, course, yes. A Polish immigrant, yep. and we actually have one of our members here whose father built the original military air tourer with he, him
3: he's one of the guys in yeah. the photograph of them all roasting that day when they rolled it out yeah yeah
5: and uh, jim used to sit in as a little kid while his dad was here gluing bits and pieces onto it so it's amazing you know the old five degrees of separation it's,
3: yeah. and, yeah, and that's, one of the, around. that's one of the great things i think from today absolutely absolutely um tell us a bit about your background how did you get involved with the museum
5: i actually walked through the door here as a 13 year old in 1979, and I've been here ever since. Wow. <laughs> That's basically it. Mm. Wow. And uh, learned to trade, had various people here who were ex craftsmen, ex serving engineers, mechanics who took me under their wing, and they were good enough to be my mentors for many years. And a lot of them are no longer here, of course. So it's very, I'm
3: very much carrying on the tradition. Which yeah, is something I'm, we've talked I'm at that about. point
5: now where I'm able to basically. Yeah, you know, teach others what has been taught to me. So, you know, continuing passing it down. And the more they're happy to do it, if somebody's willing to learn. Right. Mm.
0: Uh, I, you know, I'm a visitor from across the Tasman. This is my first time here. I'm majorly impressed. I think it's a really, really good collection, and it's a well-laid-out collection. Um, it, I just, I'm really
5: impressed. Well, the aeroplanes here, a couple of aeroplanes are fragile, so they're protected. But in large part, these things are built like battleships. And none of these aeroplanes have have come from spectacular backgrounds or, or, you know, they're unique in their various, you know, their various own histories. So we don't have to wrap them in cotton wool. So to have a little five-year-old or six-year-old be able to come up and just, you know, lay their hand on it, it removes the stigma of aviation. Mm. And, you know, you get the odd occasion where there's, you know, an incident but, you know, it's 0.01%. Most people treat them with respect. And this is what most people feedback, that the fact that they can get this close.
0: Well, that's right. I've noticed that there's no ropes around most of these aircraft. Yeah, it?
5: and it's very, very rare for something to get damaged, you know, very rare.
3: Against that, and particularly as we were talking just now about the um, the uh, Open Cockpit Day, which is a key part of what you're talking about, but also making sure that you're focusing your marketing on getting families in. And I think when, we were, when I was here for the Open Cockpit Day, I was really impressed that the variety of people who had no real connection to aviation they'd heard about it they thought they'd come and given it a look and maybe you know one in uh, you know, a 500 kids has a little problem with a with a switch or whatever and several more of those kids will be inspired and hopefully you know think that maybe aviation is something i can do yeah. I, i'd put money on that i, I think now you um, as you
0: said you've been here since you were 13 the airport here at Moorabbin must have changed a fair bit over that time.
5: <laughs> oh yeah, substantially, of course. You know, it's gone from government run to government run cost recovery to private business, private enterprise. Uh, we've, at various stages, we've had a checkered career with management, but the management here currently are very supportive. You know, really supportive. The best, the best connection we've had with management on the airport here, in in my recollection and uh working in with him you know they they develop programs and they utilize and want to involve us and etc so no i can't speak highly enough of them actually
3: great yeah good to hear and also something else that's come up in today's visit is looking particularly at the f111 building a a long-term relationship with the Australian Defence Force and the the Air Force Heritage, that they're prepared to play with you guys and that you're able to do what they need and that that you get exhibits out of them that um, flesh out the story on loan in the case of the F-111 module. Um, And that's terrific because, you know, a few years ago, we both know those kind of things just didn't happen, did they? Yeah.
5: Well, that really started with the uh, Queenslanders and their ground, you know, the Queensland E Museum. And, yeah, I and they then, mentioned
3: them as, as um, help driving a group of museums to
5: acquire The F 11s, because they all would have gone into a hole, of yep. course, with, with today's OH&S, which is everybody's scare factor, how do you manage various things? You know, I was asked on one of the forums, how do I manage the radium gauges? And I said, well, I try to refrain from licking them too much. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, it's, it's common sense. But... You know there's there's an element of these aeroplanes were made out of things and they still use this stuff today because they're the only materials they can use to do specific jobs so down track of course they've always got to be mindful
3: yeah but mindful is a very good word i think it's a great we we haven't used it so far today but it's thinking about it, and one of the things I take away from today, I think Dave would agree with me, is you come and you come for the airplanes, but you're very impressed with the people. It's the people, the stories that you're gathering from veterans and you know from from aircrew on the airliners, and fascinating stories about you know probably didn't expect to have connection to Fidel Castro today or the Red Baron today. Um, and also, I think credit to your your team here, your volunteers and your board members, in terms of their passion and excitement and commitment to the to the museum, which which is terrific. Um, so we really appreciate it, we have a terrific visit today, but we're going to put you on the spot for the very last question uh, um, for you which is, as we've asked several other people, you know, there's one particular thing that you would love to make safe for the, uh, for the world or something that's got a very personal connection, what particular thing would that be Ash?
5: From an Australian point of view it would have to be the away sitting out the front. Right. You know the start of the Australian aviation industry, you know, real aviation industry with heavy production and manufacture, and the, the start of the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation, which has always been a passion of mine. I had relatives who worked there, etc. And uh, that's you know that being the oldest survivor, the only pre-war we're away. I've actually been waiting to restore that airplane since I was like 13 years old, <laughs> and at this point in time. I think it'll be my retirement project <laughs> <laughs>
3: <You're taking laughs> when it, it
5: finally gets its full ground-up restoration. But yeah,
3: I think I think from what Dave's learned today, I certainly would be with you with that. My my grandmother worked for CAC. She was one of the first women to work for CAC in 1936. Um, so her ghost to be behind you on that one. I certainly am. And I think it's a it's a terrific collection. And it's not just that you've got great things like that, but you're, you're filling the gaps, diversifying. And I think pushing ahead on a lot of fronts we just talked about the world war one display but so many other major efforts and guys working really hard and, and uh, it's terrific
5: yeah it's it's education but it's got to be entertaining you have to find yeah. the balance yeah. because if you try to have a display of war and peace people will read three paragraphs and wander off of yeah. yeah you have to find the little niche which hooks them in and they find a subject interesting and they might read 20 or 30 items but one or two in here might stick in their head when they leave yeah. and that's the whole point yeah. Uh,
0: now James asked the last question, but I've actually got one more last question. <laughs> yeah. Because got you over, you oversee this amazing huge uh, collection here. Um, is there any particular aircraft out there that you would love to add to the collection?
5: Well, at this point in time, if all goes well, we'll be. You know, we're hoping to add a, a Mustang, which will complete our CAC production aircraft, and give us the only complete collection in the country relating to CAC.
3: And, right. and by saying the country, you're actually saying the world, so I don't yeah, think it's a yeah, yeah, true, yeah. Uh, but obviously very important for Australia, and um, that's a diverse, I don't think, uh, actually we could play a little game here, actually, could we name them off? So we have Wirraway first.
5: Yeah, the Wirraway, uh, Whacket, uh, Boomerang, Wind Mustang, Windjeel. Uh, we have the CA-31 mock-up, which was a concept aeroplane which never got past production, unfortunately. We have a Mackie. We have uh,
3: the, the turret fitting, or the... the yeah, we have we have
5: sections of the the uh, Woomera. It was a, well, it was one of the production turrets which was never fitted to the aeroplane. Uh, so we have major we have components from every single aeroplane they've ever produced. But we if we acquire this Mustang, it would give us a complete set of production aeroplanes.
3: Which is, would be a terrific collection. Mm. It would. It and would. every
5: aeroplane's restored back to fully you know fully operational, ground running, taxing, but just non flying because of the sheer cost of you know, certification, etc. Yeah.
0: Well, um, all I can say is congratulations on such a, a wonderful collection and thank you very much for the opportunity to see it. No, it's a pleasure, Mike Tom. Thank you.